Ladies and gentlemen, recorded in Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada. It's time for Fight Night Picks with your host, Frank and Matt And welcome back with Fight Night Picks. I am so excited to be back after a nice week away. We have a big time card coming up with 15 fights on the docket. You have Anthony Smith, who just continues to headline, taking on a guy who has a huge opportunity in the ever-evolving Ryan Spann. As always, one half of your host, Nadeau Craig Allen. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram, at CraigAllenFNP. And with me to my left, to your right, as always, one half of your host, Nadeau Matt Allen. You can find him on the respective socials. It's pretty simple, at MattAllenFNP. Now, Matt Allen FNP. since a number of pay-per-views ago, where it was a 1-8-1 and one slate, where we really struggle, it's been week after week after week, a positive result. And I have been so excited because we threw out a challenge out there. If we can reach 30,000 subscribers on this channel, if you've been kind of mulling around, maybe I hit the sub, maybe I don't, maybe I toss a like, maybe I don't, you definitely should. Because if we can reach 30,000 subscribers, we're going to pop out an extra show every single week for Dana White's Contender Series. So, if you've been hesitating, if you've thought about it, maybe toss us a like, toss us a sub. If you don't, it hurts a little bit. But I'll tell a friend, too. If you like this stuff, hopefully your friends will also like it. Because if you then tell one friend, then hopefully they'll tell another friend. And that's how channels like us end up growing over time. But... We are so happy that you guys have been enjoying this content up and until now. And hopefully you will get some enjoyment out of this weekend's card. Because I know we're both fairly excited for it. I know it's not the biggest card headline or name value wise. I know we both have seen a lot of Anthony Smith fights. He's one of those headliners who the UFC just kind of trusts at this point to throw into a five round fight. And it's like, oh, Anthony Smith, it's at least going to be entertaining. And like you had mentioned, this is a massive opportunity for Ryan Spann. And for Anthony Smith, sometimes you go overseas, you knock out Shogun Hua, sometimes you end up fighting Glover Teixeira and it's just an absolute bloodbath. But Overall, 15 total fights. I went over to Fight Matrix to get ready for this one. They have a rating scale out of five stars. Uh. And just to preface this, UFC 267 and UFC 268 that are coming up, four and a half stars out of five. That's even good for just a pay-per-view. Those cards are stacked. This one, two stars out of a possible five. But I say this because there's a lot of matchups throughout this card that get us excited for it. You should definitely be excited for them too. So why don't we throw it on over to our Fight of the Night screen, which is always presented by Manscaped. Make sure you check them out. Manscaped.com. Use promo code FNP. You're going to get 20% off and free shipping. Let's throw it on over to the Fight of the Night screen. We've been spending most of our lives living in a, well, normally I say striker's paradise, but a grappler's paradise. I love this fight. We have Armin Zarukian taking on Christos Yagos. Guys that have trained at Black House MMA in the past. For Christos Yagos getting ready for this one, he's in Florida. For Armin Zarukian, also in Florida. That's a crazy thing. Yagos now out of Sanford MMA. Zarukian out of American Top Team. And what you love out of both of their games dynamic on the feet but even more so on the grappling exchanges i love this fight this should be a really fun fight these are two guys who are both outside the top 15 but they're not so far away from that top exactly they're knock knock knocking on the top 15's door because arvin sarukian has shown the skill set and shown the ability that he can compete with those top guys just look at his ufc debut against islam makashev that was a phenomenal
phenomenal fight. And that was a fight that it's it's so much fun going back and watching that fight because it, it makes you remember how good Sarukia was coming into the UFC. And for Yagos, a bit of a different career trajectory. This is his second run in the UFC, of course, but he's kind of started to bring it all together. We're now starting to see the best version of Christos Yagos. I think this fight's going to be absolutely phenomenal. For both of these guys, just look at their recent losses for Zarukian Makachev in his UFC debut, for Yagos in his second turn with the promotion. Charles Oliveira and then Drakkar close in a decision. So this should be an absolutely great fight. And in our second pick, a little bit tougher to pick, but this is what we're going with here. So JP Bays hasn't fought a Bantamweight in a while, but now he is taking on Montel Jackson. You expect scrambles in this fight. You expect a little bit of wrestling to go with the striking. I think this is going to be an all-action fight. Wouldn't be surprised if it doesn't reach the full 15 minutes either. So I feel like there's going to be a little bit of pushback for this being one of our fight of the nights, but let me at least make a bit of a case for it right now before we get too in-depth with the prediction videos. JP Bays looked terrible in his UFC debut and I think that's fair to say. So he has a lot to prove this time out and Montel Jackson is such a fun fighter to watch. He's got the striking, he's got the grappling like you mentioned. The scramble should make this a very very fun fight but this is a dangerous fight for JP Bays to be taking after his really one-sided loss to Bruno Silva so I do think that we're going to see a phenomenal fight. Pure Vita BJJ's own Montel Jackson taking on JP Bays has been an extreme couture for a bit and the same thing could be said about his wife's debut Cheyenne Bays when she took on Montserrat Ruiz or Conejo and then she comes back out and looks amazing exactly. her second time out with a little bit of time at Extreme Couture so I can't wait for this fight and it's a great card overall fight of the night screen as always presented by Manscaped you can check them out at manscaped.com use the promo code FNP you're gonna get 20% off your order and free shipping and I think you should check it out you really should Great fights on this one. 15, so it's pretty hard to choose from. You let us know down below who you have for your possible fight of the night as well. I remember when I was a kid, and this, we're like, we're really going back quite a bit, but I've always been a big Tobey Maguire fan as far as Spider-Man The oldest concerned. high schooler of all time. Yeah, the oldest high schooler. Well, he was in university or college for our American friends. But, you know, in the movie, the first Spider-Man movie, I knew... That Nickelback had a song there, but then it was like it was like Chad Kroger and Josie Scott from Saliva. <laughs> and they say that hero can save us. Not gonna stand <laughs> that here. That might have been off YouTube. That's close to the real thing. But listen, I love that song. I love that movie. And apparently, the people at the UFC designing this poster, they did too, because it looks like Anthony Smith and Ryan Spann are going wow. for that. Peter Parker, Mary Jane, Kiss. That's a vibe I get. Regardless, 15 fights on this card. And wherever your excitement level is, it's worth a like. I mean, hey, they're free, right, Matt? Yeah, they are. The boys still put the work in. But listen, if you want to go a step further, you can check out our sponsors, manscaped.com, promo code FNP. You're going to get 20% off and free shipping. You can also find our store where you can pick up some cool merch. A lot of these gray tees left. They really work all year round, and honest to goodness, when I'm not, you know, taping these videos, I'm pretty much living and dying oh, in this shirt. Like, it. when I do die, bury me in this shirt, like if we're getting real and meta. And overall, a lot of great stuff going on with Fight Night Picks. If you can't get enough of us talking about MMA, you can find us on our second channel. It's 15-minute card breaks. We're opening sports cards. We're continuing the conversation over there. If you can't get enough of the NBA, NHL, NFL references, good stuff over there as well. Link down below in the description. Matt, 
We've talked enough in the intro. We, we have. have 15 fights to get ready for, including what? Like a short notice entry. Cameron Van Camp. He's going to be uh, replacing Jim Miller. So a lot of big fights coming up. You're not going to want to miss them. Keep them locked in with Fight Night Picks. As we always say, let's, let's get, get into it. it. All right, so the trickiest fight to try and pick and predict goes off the board at number one. We have Spitfire Emily Whitmire at four and four. The record's so nice, she has it twice. Because, Matt, she was 4-4 four and four as an amateur and 4-4 four and four as a pro. She was on the Ultimate Fighter, unfortunately for her. Didn't totally work out. But really, in the UFC, it's been weird. I mean, she has taken on some really big names. Maybe hasn't beaten them, but that level of experience is there. You look at it, since she's come into the UFC, a loss to Jillian Robertson, a loss to Mandy Hebos, a loss to Pollyanna Viana, the wins in the UFC over Jamie Moyle and Alexandra Albu. And it really is kind of tricky because you have to figure, unfortunately for both these women, it could be a one-and-done type scenario where you lose... You're done. And for Hannah Goldie, we saw her compete, uh, what, just a couple of months ago. She took on Diana Belbizia. And unfortunately for her, wasn't able to get the job done in Goldie's UFC debut. Took on Miranda Granger. It was more of the same. And we've seen that from Hannah Goldie. Something that I've really talked about. Nice leg kicks. Nice in and out. Because she's normally the smaller fighter against a lot of the women that she takes on at 115 pounds. Definitely has a strength advantage over the majority. She uses that raw strength as her takedown offense. Her takedown defense. But it's one of those things that we even see it out of the men. Kind of when you get up to like 185, 205. There's some guys out there that can just use brute strength. And then after a while, it kind of drains on their cardio. But all of the positives that I had for Hannah Goldie coming into the UFC, you can kind of just throw them out the window because she's been out volume. She's been out grappled. Every strength I've seen for Hannah Goldie hasn't really worked out for her. So for me, Hannah Goldie very much is a striker at the core, very much volume centered. She's just been out volumed in every single fight. For Whitmire, Matt, we haven't seen her in a long time, too. No, we haven't. And that's the craziest stat about Emily Whitmire. She's been in the UFC since 2017. That's been longer since Luka Doncic has been in the NBA, and he's one of the best players in the NBA. And the weird thing has been, she's gotten a bit of a promotional push, I'll say. It's not like she's like a Macy Barber, for instance, where, oh, they're putting her on nothing but main cards. But coming off that season of The Ultimate Fighter, there was a little bit of Whitmire buzz. I know that Jillian Robertson fight was a really big fight. It was one of those, okay, neither one of you won your season. We'll still match you up, and we'll give you the chance in the UFC. She immediately gets submitted. Uh, it, so fast, it's not even funny in that fight. And that's been the thing about Emily Whitmire. You look at her two wins. I know we throw this term around a lot. I know Anthony Freight Train Hamilton was one of the first, like, oh, this guy's the worst fighter I've seen in the UFC. This is the problem. Emily Whitmire's two wins are, quite honestly, over two of the worst fighters in UFC history. Jamie Moyle is not good whatsoever. I don't think that's a controversial thing to say. And Alexandra Albu, uh, she never really had the experience to go along with it. She was a really weird fighter if you go back and look at her career because she would fight like once a year, every year on International Fight Week, get beat, and then the, the UFC would just bring her back the next year. It was a very strange run. But, but, but uh, when she went into her fight with Whitmire, she was undefeated. She was 3-0. and It was a big fight. That's the thing. Like but, it's just, It was just odd. But being undefeated at 3-0, and that's my issue. She was a very inexperienced fighter, and it was a good win for Whitmire, but I thought 
or I felt that at least at the time, a lot of people put a lot of stock behind that win, and then Emily Whitmire was never really able to build on top of that. When I think about the game of Emily Whitmire, it's not difficult to break it down. She has, I would say, sloppy volume striking on the feet would be the easiest way to describe it, and she goes for a high volume of takedowns, and she gets stuck a lot in that in-between clinch. Now, Hannah Goldie, like you said, is very physically strong, and she does rely a lot on just her pure strength to get out of takedowns. She's not somebody like a Robert Whitaker, for instance, who I'm sure is very, very physically strong, but we see he digs under hooks, he sprawls, he does all those little skill checks, if you will, that you really like seeing from somebody high level to defend a takedown. For Goldie, it is a lot of like, I'm gonna try to pull that one underhook and just wrench it as hard as I can, and then that'll be it. I do worry about Goldie's staying power, and I don't just mean that about her in the UFC, I just mean that in this fight, because, again, like you had mentioned, she is the smaller fighter in this fight, and Emily Whitmire's weird, because I don't think she has great takedowns, but she is an oddly large fighter for this division. She has a very big frame and her takedowns are very jujitsu takedown each. She doesn't go for a lot of power double legs or anything. It's a lot of I wrap you up in the clinch. I then go to drag you down to the ground. I don't think Emily Whitmire is a great fighter by any means, but stylistically, I do think she has at least a few wrinkles in her game that will give Hannah Goldie trouble. It's kind of crazy and you had mentioned, I mean, Whitmire comes into the UFC in 2017. She fought once in 2017, once in 2018, Twice in 2019 and once in 2020. This is her first time out in 2021. For Hannah Goldie, the same can't be said. She fought Granger two years ago. She fought Diana Balbizia a month and two weeks ago. She gives up a couple inches of reach. She gives up about an inch in height. And you talked about that with Whitmire. She's one of those people that kind of carries themselves like a big... Like Derek Brunson on Media Day? I guess, if that's what you want to go with. But... For Whitmire coming out of a really neat gym in Syndicate MMA. Of course, you're going to have Joanne Calderwood there. You're going to have, who else? Jasmine Jaws Vicious that I think a lot of people are excited about seeing in the UFC. Vita Ortega, somebody who has nothing but fun fights over with Bellator. And you've got the powerful grappling. You've got the takedowns. For Whitmire, the one thing that you would worry about in a fight against Hannah Goldie will play devil's advocate for both fighters. Whitmire keeps her legs really wide. She's a really wide base when she's standing out there. Almost looks kind of like a karate fighter, but she plants and then she throws her hands. And when she throws her hands, she just leaves her head there and doesn't move her body or her head. For Hannah Goldie, perfect opportunity. Pitter-patter, in and out. And if you like Goldie in this fight, that's her great opportunity. The other thing for Hannah Goldie, she can get backed up really easily. That's a great opportunity for Whitmire to kind of Really close that gap. That's when you do have to worry when you're taking on somebody like Goldie. But for Goldie, out of her five wins, four by decision, one by knockout. For Whitmire, she's a threat to get submitted. I think that's fair to say. I mean, you look at the losses. It it that, That's the primary way that she is losing. So it'll be interesting to see how much Goldie's invested in her grappling over with Fusion XL in Florida to get ready for a fight like this, Matt. It, it really is a tricky one. But again... I look at it, if if you like Goldie, she continues to get beat at her own game, she gets stifled, she gets not necessarily out-grappled, but she gets beat, beat for minutes on end. That's a trouble in a fight against somebody like Whitmire. And I think that is the big key to this fight. The thing that I hate is, okay, let's say you're dominating the regional scene with your volume striking. That's what we get to know you for. Then you make the jump to the UFC, and we can all agree the UFC is a jump from whatever regional scene a person would be on, and then the thing that you're supposed to be having success with isn't only maybe just on par with other people. Other people are now starting to beat you at the thing that you were originally having success with. That's been the problem with Hannah Goldie. I remember before the Miranda Granger fight, we were both talking about how Hannah Goldie has all the tools to beat someone like 
like Miranda Granger. But Miranda Granger basically just outdid Hannah Goldie in all the strengths Hannah Goldie had. And again, when I talk about those in-between positions and those, oh, Whitmire might be going for a takedown, she won't be able to get it, but it'll at least be somewhat of a stalling position. Those are all minutes that Emily Whitmire is probably going to be winning in this fight. And I don't think either one's going to be able to get a finish, to be completely honest. So I do see Emily Whitmire winning a razor, razor close decision. Yeah, this is a really tricky one. If you're going to bet on this, you're insane. <laughs> yeah. Whitmire open to minus 180 favorite. She's minus 124 right now for Hannah Goldie. Open to plus 155. She's a plus 101 or thereabouts. If we have a look over on Topology for this one, 969 total votes, 72% Goldie, 84% by decision. For the 28% that have Whitmire, 78% by decision. I mean, it really is a tricky fight. I've been with Hannah Goldie in both of her last fights. I thought she beat Granger. She loses. I thought she beat Balbizia, who made big advancements in her she game, did. especially moving down to 115 pounds. So credit where it's due to the Romanian fighting out of Canada in Diana Balbizia. But yeah, I look at this fight... It really is tricky. For Whitmire, she does have a background in wrestling coming from the Pacific Northwest. I like the training out of Syndicate for this fight. So I'll go against the grain of the fan vote. I'll go with the odds. But I bet you once this one comes into fight night, you've seen those odds close in. I don't know if we'll see Goldie as a favorite just based on the record uh, that's not so sexy for Emily Whitmire. But yeah, for me, I've got Whitmire in this fight. I think she's going to be able to really kind of tighten things up. Really going to be able to close the distance and make this one boring. Yeah, I think you're 100% right. This fight does belong in the Bellator prelims, not even the UFC prelims, because just these fighters aren't of the level that you would assume fighters at this weight division are. Like, women's strawweight is by far the best women's weight division, and it's not even close right now. You look at the top of the division, just the whole division, you've got fighters like Tatiana Suarez, who hopefully her neck gets better at some point. Yoani Jacek, Wei Li, Rose Namajunas. Like, these are fighters who show mixed martial arts at their highest capability, and I just don't think either one of these fighters will ever find themselves in those positions in this weight class i'm gonna go with the whitmire pick but i do think she'll be making her way to the top 15 after this one both of us going with spitfire whitmire matt we've got a full slate of fights 15 in total headline by anthony lionheart smith take on superman ryan span you're not gonna want to miss it keep it locked in with fight name picks as we always say let's get into it Coming up this weekend, a couple of Bantamweights looking to get back in the win column. We have the former Combate champion Gustavo Lopez taking on the Mongolian Knight, Alatang Haley. And Matt, I love this fight. Listen, when we were kind of going over possible fight in the night scenarios, we went a little off the board with Montel Jackson, JP Bays. But I think this fight, in terms of being a grappler's paradise, it definitely is one of those fights. And I want to pass it on over to you because... We look at fight cards every single weekend. We look at fighters, and I'm going to throw it at Gustavo Lopez. Is he one of the better fighters out there that just has an awful record because he's fought good competition? He really might be. Like, arguing for Gustavo Lopez is trying to, like, argue for Chris Paul. If you just look at the resume, yeah, there's a lot of blemishes on there. But if you look any deeper than just surface level, you'll see that, oh, he's not losing to scrubs by any means. And the really fun thing about Gustavo Lopez is that he is such a fun and dynamic fighter. He's got great wrestling. His jiu-jitsu is absolutely absurd. His striking... It's odd because there's sort of conflicting reports. I don't think he's the worst striker in the world. I will say this right now. But this is the issue. He definitely does strike too much. And that is the problem for Gustavo Lopez. We talk about this with a lot of other fighters. How they almost don't know what they do well. Sarah McMahon is the example that I always go to. Hey Sarah, 
do more than wrestle. Gustavo's teammate, Justin Jeans. Hey, stop striking. I get it. You beat Camacho, but start wrestling again. Exactly. And I don't know if this is just a, maybe a larger problem with the gym, but the problem with Gustavo Lopez is you have this great wrestling and jiu-jitsu background, but you are forcing yourself to strike for extended periods of time with guys who are just better strikers than Gustavo Lopez. And even if you go back to the Marab Davalshvili fight, because I know there's people out there being like, oh, if he's such a good grappler, why did he beat Marab? Listen to me right now. He may have lost to, like, one of the top three boxers in the division in his last fight, and one of the top two pure wrestlers in the division two fights ago. And I don't really think you can look at Gustavo Lopez and think, oh, wow, he's terrible because of those two losses. This fight is really important, though, because for Haile Alatang, a lot of people do remember him for his crazy fight with Casey Kenny, which was way longer ago than I ever thought. I keep on thinking, oh, what, that fight was, what, six months ago? We're almost coming up on a whole year since the last time Alatang's been in the cage. I really want to talk about that fight because if you go back and watch that one, yes, it's crazy. Yes, the judges' decisions are strange. Do you know how weird that one is? One of those judges had two rounds at a 10-8. The overall score is 30-25, 30-26, 30 That's not good, but if if you're looking at it for Alatang Hey Lee, I mean, hey, Casey Kenny's a good talent. On any given day, he's a 10 to 15 type guy. Maybe he could beat a guy in the top 10 if he went back to his base, which is wrestling, but for Alatang Haley, the fights in the UFC, he beat Denar Bakari. That's a great fight if you want to go back it and was. watch that. Then he fights Ryan Benoit, beats him by split decision. And then you lose to Casey Kenny. Okay, so you're a what? A 20 to 25 guy? Maybe a 20 to 30 guy? For Alatang Haley, what I like about him, he's a good striker. He throws with a lot of power. And if he gets tired, which tends to happen, he starts to wrestle quite a bit more. And I really want to go hard on these stats because they're late wrestling. Three out of seven of his takedowns, he was able to get in round three against the Nabakari. Four of his 12 takedowns against Ryan Benoit, those are in the third round too. He likes to put a stamp on them. Dana White, definitely hates Alatang Lee's third rounds. I mean, it's like Brendan Lockney. I could win impressively, or if I just go to my base and I start taking guys down, I could just win the fight. For him, that's what he's been going for throughout his UFC tenure, his short three-fight tenure. But man, both guys are really in a tricky spot here. I'm telling you right now, if Haile Alatang shoots a lazy, tired takedown on Gustavo Lopez, he's getting choked out. That is the real big key to this fight. And I'm really glad you brought it up because the thing about Alatang is he does wrestle the further into fights that he does get. And that's going to be a big strength for Gustavo Lopez because the more that they're grappling, or I won't say just the more that they're grappling because I do think Alatang can at least defend takedown attempts and score scramble a little bit, but in those scrambles, I do think that's where Lopez is going to have a lot of his success. If Alatang shoots for the initial takedown, and if Lopez can sprawl, even if he can try to defend it with some kind of a submission, kind of like Vicente Luque on Michael Chiesa, just make him work and make him think about all those different chokes that Lopez has. I think he can make this a really tough fight for Haile Alatang, and the thing about Alatang that, and I'm not trying to be a contrarian here, I know I call Craig out for this all the time, but how, if there's a split decision, Craig probably thought the guy who lost won, but but I really did think Ryan Benoit beat Haile Alatang. And I know I, think I predict Ryan Benoit wins every time, and he never does on this channel. But 
that was one of those fights where even Ryan Benoit, who is a guy who doesn't have great volume, we've seen him in some fights get outworked, he outworked Haile Alatang on the feet. And that was a weird fight because Ryan Benoit has great power, and if he hits you hard, he can put you down. But he was starting to string together combinations and having some success on the feet, and that really did come down to the cardio aspect of their fight. And that's what I think this fight's going to come down to. If Alatang can outlast the initial takedowns and scrambles of Gustavo Lopez, I do think he can have success in the second and third round volume striking on the outside, but the issue is that I'm trusting him to become a volume striker, and he hasn't shown that ability throughout his first three UFC fights. I guess he did a little bit in that Casey Kenny one, but a lot of that fight was Kenny's throwing three four-punch combinations, and Alatang's just kind of answering with one to keep Kenny off of him, and Kenny's strikes end up being like 200 and Alatangs were 50. Yeah, 50 looks nice, but if you're only retaliating one to every four landed, it's not really great at the end of the day. I think Haile Alatang the best version of him, I do agree, could be like a 25 to 30 guy. I just don't think we've really seen that guy in the UFC up until this point. And I know Gustavo Lopez has bad losses on his record. Got knocked out by Andre Ewell. Got beat by Adrian Yanez. But I still think I gotta pick uh, Gustavo Lopez in this one. The thing that I absolutely love, Gustavo Lopez, he's been an extreme couture for a very long time, but Alatang Hey Lee decided I'm gonna go into that Spotify playlist. I'm gonna throw some David Bowie in there. I'm gonna make some changes he did because he had to make some changes and he decided to go to fight ready mma one of my favorite gyms out there in this world in arizona and the guys that are in the pictures just warm the cockles of my heart matt we have eddie cha but then we have eric alberta seeing and he only kind of works with some guys there the pitbull brothers bruno silva some decent fighters along the list also Hunter Azure. I think that's a perfect training partner for a fight like this. So I'll leave you with that. I look at the odds for this fight. They open a par for both guys, so minus 110. Right now, you have Lopez at a plus 101 or thereabouts. You have Haile Alatang at a minus 123. If we look at the topology votes, surprise us, they are to you. 979 total votes, 71% with Alatang. Uh, 82% by decision. For the 29% that have Lopez, 70% by decision. Matt, it seems like we might be split on this pick, but I do like Alatang Haley as far as his striking is concerned. I definitely don't like, as we mentioned, the wrestling late, and that's been a point in his fight with Benoit, in his fight with Dana Bakari, but in his last fight, yeah, it was just, man, like, he just kind of got put behind the eight ball. But like he said, it's been a long time away. He has been at fight ready, getting ready for this one for quite some time. I like that camp change for Alatang. And for those reasons, I like him in this fight. But I mean, man... I see this as a razor-tight fight, and where those opening odds are at, I can't disagree. I think Alatang can have success on the feet for as long as the fight stays there, but I do think at some point this fight will become somewhat of a grappling match, and when it comes to the grappling, I don't think Ailey can stay at least consistent or stay sustainable with his grappling with Gustavo Lopez. Lopez is a really tricky grappler on the mat. He's got to go for arms, go for necks. He's got a plethora of different chokes on his resume. We're going to talk about Anthony Burchak throughout this because Gustavo Lopez fought him, beat him. That was short notice. And then he took on one really tough out in Tony Gravely and he got knocked out. But at the base, Anthony Burchak is a great jiu-jitsu player, is. and he competes in jiu-jitsu tournaments all the time. Gustavo Lopez submitted him fairly quickly. He did, and again, I really do think that Lopez has that, like, nth degree of grappling in this division, so I will go with Lopez as the slight underdog. Matt, going with Gustavo Lopez, I've got Alatang Haley in this one. We want to hear from you down below in the comments section. Do you like Matt's hat? 
Do you like my hair? Who do you have to win in this fight? You let us know. We're split on the pick. We've got a big time slate ahead. 15 total fights, including Anthony Lionheart Smith taking on Superman Ryan Spann. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, as we always say. Let's get into it. A couple of guys at 170 pounds coming off huge wins in their last time out. We have Impa Kasangani representing Sanford MMA taking on Carlson Harris. This is a guy coming into the UFC. I know we were both really excited. And listen, Pat's on the back because we had him to beat Christian Aguilera. And did he ever look amazing in that fight? Went with his patented, what was it, Anaconda choke in that one. His win to get into the UFC was a Darce over... Was it a Habib Nurmagomedov type fighter in the EFC and UAE Warriors card that was co-promoted? Yes, it was. And Matt, because this is Carlson Harris' second time out, we're going to go throw it on over to a rookie review sponsored by our own 15-minute card breaks. You can check out our second channel down below in the comments section. But really important to learn about Harris and his journey into the UFC. Then we can focus on that ever-important Aguilera fight. Throw it on back to the rookie review. Really interesting fight in this one because for Carlson Harris, he was one of those guys that was featured on not Dana White's looking for a fight. It was Dana White's looking FWD to a fight. I'm assuming that's forward, but if you go back and you look at his last win, he picked up the big finish over Segid Izagameyev, who was 17-1. That was on a co-promoted EFC, which was Eagles and UAE Warriors card. And it was taking place on Fight Island in and around the time when... Dana White tried to go all LeBron James on ABC and had the decision with Habib Nurmagomedov where they shut a white door in a boardroom, had a chat, made everybody feel like Habib was coming back, and then in the end, he wasn't. Carlson Harris gets contract. And if you've ever watched him fight, this guy has a really neat style where he's looking to take you down, he's looking to grind you out, and he does have plenty of finish wins. You look at it, I mean, 15 total, 8 of them by finish, 4 by knockout, 4 by submission, but very much a grinder. He'll go in there, he'll try and snatch a leg, work for a single, work for a double, even bring you up against the cage just to try and knock down your base, wear you out, and finish you. And if he doesn't, then more than likely he's going to win by decision. I mean, again, 15-4 the total record. He's 33 years old, nearly 34, and you don't see a lot of fighters getting their debut, especially at welterweight, being that far up, and I say far up, but being that far up in age, especially being a prospect like that. So maybe an unlikely signing to the UFC. But it is unfortunate, and I'm just going to expand a little bit upon what you had sort of mentioned. Carlston Harris is kind of in that Harney Barcellos area where it's like, damn, I really wish this guy was like five years younger because it really is unfortunate that a guy at 170 is only getting his first opportunity at the age of 33, almost 34, because at 170... It's not like age is going to catch up to you like maybe a Dominic Cruz at Bantamweight. You can age a little bit more gracefully. I mean, look, Cowboy Cerrone's in the co-main event. But for Harris, it would have been nice if we could see him in the UFC a little bit earlier so that he could be able to do his run maybe a little bit earlier. For Carlston Harris, if he is able to get in there, get on the hips of Aguilera, and again, people hate it when I say this and I hate saying it, making it a boring fight and trying to at least extinguish some of those flames that Aguilera comes in with, I do think Carlston can get his UFC career off to the right track. If you look at Carlston Harris's five on in and we talk about it, especially with the graphics. You look at it, I mean, Segid Izagagmeyev, he gets the win there, who's 17-1. Alex Santos, 9-7-1. Claudio Rocha at 12-11. and That was kind of like a bounce-back win because before that, he was the brave champ at 170. Picked up a big win over Carl Booth, a name that people might recognize out of Europe. 
And then he lost to Jeral Hussein Al-Salawi. And that's a guy that we've been talking about a fair bit with Fight Night Picks, I want to say, because he's kind of like the brave CF guy that you need to know. It's either Jeral Hussein Al-Salawi or Abdul Abdurgimov. We talked about him in an episode of Keeping Score, which is on our Instagram, at Fight Night Picks. But those are kind of the two guys at 170 over with Brave. For Carlson Harris, though, again, came up, had a fight with Immortal, had a fight or some fights with Brave, with Shuto, and then he has that one fight on a big UAE Warriors card in front of the brass, Dana White, Dean Thomas, a guy who poor Habib thought was who? Who do you think he was? Eve Edwards? He didn't know who he was. Yeah, it was really weird. And that was a weird thing to punctuate, but they also punctuated the whole Josh Fabia thing, and look how that turned out. Christian Aguilera didn't really stand a chance in that fight. No, he didn't. No, it wasn't even really close. So for Harris... You gotta continue to win. I mean, we all know that. He's 34 at this point, 34 and two months old, taking on Impic Sanganai. And as excited as we are about Harris and that win over Aguilera, man, Impic Sanganai, yes, he was on the receiving end of a Twitter meme. He ended up uh, in part of a Kanye West song, kind of. Wasn't his fault. It was Joaquin Buckley's, who's also on this card. But for Kasanganai, moved from Jim O to Sanford MMA, moved down a weight class, first time fighting at 170 pounds. For a heavily muscled guy, you worry about him making the move down a weight class. Remember, heavily muscled guy at 135 pounds. TJ Dillashaw, he moved to 125. EPO, got knocked out. But for Kasanganai, moves down. Looks all right. And then looked amazing against Sasha Palatnikov. Ended up submitting him in the second round of that fight. Didn't really give him an inch in that one either. So for Kasanganai, huge win his last time out. Harris, huge win last time out. Both of these guys implement different styles in just about every aspect of their fighting. But at the end of the day, both very athletically well-rounded. Ipikasek and I had a bad day at work. It happens. You've had them. I've had them. But when I have a bad day at work, someone gets their food a little bit late at a brewery. When you have a bad day at work... I don't really know what you do well enough. Anyways, Ibukasek and I didn't let his one bad moment define his whole career. And that's the really important thing about Kasang and I. He didn't just get put on a poster and then go, okay, I'm going to take my ball and go home. He made the proper improvements. And for Kasang and I, it's interesting. I feel like Sanford MMA, they're kind of like the Toronto Raptors, where they just kind of have this, like, player in mind that they want, because if they get that player, they know how to build around them. It feels like they're doing the same thing with Impicus Sanganite that they're doing with Brendan Allen. I don't need you to be a great striker, I just need you to be a good one. And hey, that really works out great. And the great thing about the Sanford move is... They don't want you to become a striker just because now you go to Sanford MMA. They go, hey, we have you for six months. This is great. Now your striking is going to be six months better. But we don't need to show it right now. We're going to use our striking defensively. We're going to get into the clinch. And we're going to use your strengths to the best of their abilities. And then once you start, you know, you make it two, three, four years with that gym, you can see how it pays off. Look at Gilbert Burns, for instance. Ipikasegadai has really made those adjustments, and he has become a much better defensive striker on the feet. The thing about Ipikasegadai, and I'd love to get your feedback on this, he reminds me a lot of Yoel Romero in his striking, but not with the explosion at the end of it. He's very defensively minded on the feet, and he will only focus on single shots offensively, almost in pursuit of defense. He holds his hands very high, he throws his 1-2 a lot, he will throw a kick to the body, but Ipikasegadai is not the type of fighter who really leaves himself open and lets his opponent counter unless he grabs a kick holds it for too long and then eats one to the face and again cue the twitter meme but yeah it, it is really tricky because for harris throws really nice leg kicks throws decent boxing combinations and for a guy that's not 
at a super gym. He just continued to go to a smaller gym and he continues to post results. And that's the big thing. Took on a really good level of competition. I know we talked about that in the rookie review, but I absolutely love every facet of Harris's game. And he really understands, you talk about defensive movements on the feet. Carlson Harris is one of those grapplers that you make a slight mistake you don't get Anaconda and Darce chokes easily. Those are for the greatest of grapplers. You talk about Vicente Luque a lot. He's a master of those. So for Harris, you look at it, and I really wanted to bring up athletic prowess because for Kasang and I, I bring it up, younger guy that got into MMA not that long ago that uses some of his physical talents, but... He's a decent wrestler. He's a decent striker. Now, for Kasang and I, he has a reach advantage a lot of the time. In this one, it's going to be really close. He gives up about an inch. He gives up a little bit in terms of height. But everything's pretty close. But he's one of those guys that uses long-range weapons, his kicks. He uses the, sh the, the kind of whip at the end of his punch. Now, is it the most powerful? Not necessarily because he does end up going to a lot of decisions. So that could be to his detriment against a guy like Carlson Harris. You look at it at the five on in. He's got that one loss to Jarrah Hussein Al-Salawi that we already talked about. Probably one of the better prospects at 170 pounds that we don't have in the UFC. Lost that one by knockout. Lost a split to Julio Cesar Andrade back in 2016. And then has a few losses from early on in his career. What? 10 and 9 years ago. So for Harris, he just continues to win at an older age. For him, Kasang and I, still, I would say fairly green, but you can definitely tell he's learning on the job every time out. In the UFC, win over Maki Patolo, lost to Buckley, win over Platnikov his last time out by submission. Certainly surprised me with that one because Platnikov, decent grappler. He manhandled them. Though. Decent grappler. Kasang and I look great, Matt. The odds for this fight, we got Kasang and I open to minus 150. He's minus 135 right now. Harris open to plus 130. He's plus 110. If we head on over to Topology, it's a surprise to me because 1,021 total votes, 76% Kasang and I, 66% have him to win by decision, 26% by knockout. For the 24% that have Harris to win, 55% by submission, to me, that's kind of... Kasangani is a huge name. Maybe people are going with name value over there because those odds are fairly close. I have a hard time with this one, honestly. I still like it, but Kasangani, because this is the problem. I think Carlson Harris needs to get the takedown at some point to win this fight. I do think he has good boxing combinations, but I don't think he's such a good striker that he can just win a 15-minute fight at the UFC level on the feet. I do really think he is going to have to incorporate the grappling at some point. And the thing about Ibikasangani is he's not just good at defending strikes, of course. He does have great takedown defense, too. Physical strength really does play a part into his game. And I do think he can just do enough every single round to... To slightly edge out a decision win over Harris. Again, I don't think he's going to make this fight very entertaining. Because the more entertaining it is, probably the more it plays into Harris's game. But I do think Kasangani can walk away with another decision win. I really do. Kasangani reminds me of Kai Kamaka. We're going to have to make a list for fighters with crazy physique but no knockout power. But yeah, Kasangani is one of those odd characters where he doesn't really have a lot of finished wins. Even though you would look at him and assume he can starch everybody with one punch. Carlson Harris, he's won his last four fights by finish. Claudio Rocha. Alex Santos, Sagid, Isaac Gaimev, and then Christian Aguilera submitting him in the first round of their fight. Like I said, I have this one as a toss-up. I want to hear from you down below in the comment section on this one. I'm ever so slightly giving the edge to 
Imp and Kasanganite, but I don't have the most confidence in that one. So I want to hear from you down below. Both of us right now going with Imp and Kasanganite. But listen, I think Harris has a great opportunity here to really get a big win and vault himself into the conversation at 170 pounds fairly quickly too. Only two fights in. We have Kasanganite. Want to hear from you. 15 fights on this card. Headlined by Superman Span taking on Anthony Smith. You're not going to want to miss. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks as we always say. Let's, let's get, get into it. it. Strange fight coming up this weekend at 125 pounds. We have cold-blooded Aaron Blanchfield making her UFC debut, taking on Sarah Too Sweet Alper. And I was really excited for Blanchfield to come in on short notice up a weight class to take on Norma Dumont. Unfortunately for me and everybody else, well, Aaron Blanchfield made weight, and that would have been her first fight at 135 pounds. Norma Dumont did not, which is a story of Dumont at 135. She weighed in at 139.5. It's the bricks in her hands. They weigh too much. That's enough. So, Matt, ultimately we don't get that fight. And I thought that was going to be too much too soon for Blanchfield. Because, listen, she's one of the greatest fighters at 125 without a belt that wasn't in the UFC. And it would have been a great opportunity for her. Win, lose, or draw. Same thing. Vanessa Demopoulos got a fight not that long ago. Short notice. 125. She moved back down to 15. Might not have as much success as Blanchfield will. To, yeah. Might not, but a big name that you recognize. So, in this fight, it gets interesting because you can pick off some of the names on these ladies' resumes, and they're very impressive. Sarah Alpar won with LFA for the title against who, Matt? Uh, I can't think off the top of my head. You can't think off the top of your head. Come on, Jocelyn Edwards. Big split decision win. Which then she went on wild. Contender Series, beat Shannon Young by submission. Earns her shot. Takes on Jessica Rose Clark. And I talked about it in that fight. I might have picked Alper in that one. I think I did. Yeah. I thought the wrestling advantage that she had, the size, it would have worked out great. She was going to tire out Jessica Rose Clark. And much to my dismay... All those things happened to her. Jessica Rose Clark almost need her illegally, but didn't. We had the replay for that one. And Sarah Alper had a bad fight on her hands. So what does she do in this one? Well, she's going to move down a weight class, and hopefully for Sarah Alper, she had a good camp get coming into this one. I know there was a lot of controversy, or at least talk, around fight or pay. She put out a GoFundMe because she couldn't fund her camp, couldn't make it to a fight, and that sucks. Like, Jake Paul was talking about fighters like Sarah Alper when he was looking for more equitable pay for fighters. And listen, I'm a bad media guy because I want fighters to get paid more money, yeah. but when I look at this one... So she's going to move down to 125 pounds. And I had to write it in my notes because this is her first fight at 125 since December 18th, 2015. Started her career at one, er, 125. That was, what, almost six years ago. Erin Blanchfield, one of the best prospects at 125 pounds. Her only loss, I think she won against Tracy Cortez over with Invicta. Cortez wins, goes on Contender Series, wins, goes to the UFC. If Blanchfield won that fight... She very well could be in the UFC, but you look at the names. They're names you know and recognize uh, over with LFA. She knocked out Victoria Leonardo. Okay, two, that's not that hard to do. But two big head kicks uh, and earns the knockout. She beat Brogan Walker Sanchez her last time out. Uh, name that a lot of people know and recognize with Invicta. Aaron Blanchfield, she's trained at some of the biggest gyms in New York. Uh, what? She's been at Henzo Gracie. She's a black belt in jiu-jitsu. She is a great ground fighter. But she's continued to make leaps and bounds, jumps and gains, I guess I want to say, in her striking. And I absolutely love that for her. Now she's at her own weight class that she's so familiar with. I, I don't see Sarah Alpar winning this fight. Wow, Craig. No, here's the problem. 
I'm gonna have the same problem with Aaron Blanchfield that I do with Cyril God. And I, I know it's a good problem to have when I'm questioning your durability. When I'm questioning how good you are as opposed to your level of competition. Because you're so much better than your level of competition. But the problem is that after Saturday, after Aaron Blanchfield destroys Sarah Alpire, because yes, she's going to win this fight, I'm still gonna have the exact same questions. Like, as a fan, or not even as a fan, just as someone trying to look at the careers of Aaron Blanchfield, trying to assume, okay, where is her ceiling? I don't think her beating Sarah Alpar is going to give her many answers towards that. I think Aaron Blanchfield is going to be able to do the exact same thing Jessica Rose Clark was able to do to Sarah Alpar because Sarah Alpar is one of those fighters who, yes, she has good wins on her record, but she's one of those fighters who, if you're a striker who needs distance, I'm going to crash that distance constantly, constantly, constantly. And it's not that I'm beating you per se, it's I'm just putting out your fire constantly and I'm just making you defensive as a result from it. Aaron Blanchfield doesn't need distance to strike with you though to win fights. She can out-grapple you, she can out-wrestle you, she can out-strike you, don't get me wrong, but it's not like she has to rely on that to win fights. I, I just think this is a really, really tough fight for Sarah Alpar. We saw her struggle with not only the size, but the strength of Jessica Rose Clark. Rose Clark is barely a bantamweight, like she used to fight at this division before moving up, so... I just think this is a tough fight for Sarah Alpar. I know we haven't given a lot of ways for Alpar to win, but when you look at what Alpar does well, it matches or it laps over with a lot of what Blanchfield's strengths are. And Alpar is just one of those fighters who, unless she is able to get the takedown, unless she is able to wear her opponent out, I just don't think she's going to be able to get those quality wins that we're looking for at the UFC level. It is frustrating though, because again, I think Aaron Blanchfield should be in there with Macy Barbers of the world. Like, names like that to at least increase her star potential. I don't really think she... This is one of those no-win situations. You beat Sarah Alpar, that's great, you were supposed to anyways. You lose to Sarah Alpar, it's like, ugh, people didn't really think she was great. So, this is a tough situation for Blanchfield to be in, but I do think she'll be able to get the win. I mean, Alpar has the wrestling in her back pocket. She has jiu-jitsu in her back pocket too. I just think Blanchfield's is a little bit better. Coming in here, just having turned 22, well, since her last fight booking against Norma Dumont. She would have been 21 coming into that, Matt. The odds for this one, Blanchfield open a minus 180. She's minus 316. And if you look at it for Alpar, open a plus 135. She's plus 245. Over on Topology, it's going to be a surprise to us as it is to you. Uh, 997 total votes, 92% Blanchfield, 82% by decision. For the 8% that have Alpar, 63% by decision. I would be fine with saying, yeah, if Alpar is going to win, definitely by decision. If Blanchfield's going to win, decision, maybe submission. I, I can't stress this enough, though. Again, you haven't fought at 125 in six years. I do worry about the weight cut for this one, too. So we'll see how Sarah Alpar makes out with that. Because you almost have to beat the scale before you can win the fight. And that's something that you always worry about. I have Blanchfield in this one. I normally don't go so hard in the paint. And if I get it wrong, I look like a dink. But I've got Aaron Blanchfield. Yeah, I agree. Both of us going with Aaron Blanchfield to get the win. I think she has a great opportunity here to make a mark at the flyweight division and start to make a run. Let us know down below in the comments section if you think we went too hard. Because normally we don't. Matt, we have 15 fights total on this card. Anthony Lionheart-Smith taking on Superman Ryan Spann up the top. You're not going to want to miss. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, as we always say. Let's, Let's get, get into it. it. I don't know why JP Bays decided to sign the boat agreement for this fight, but he's going to be taking on Montel Jackson at 135 pounds. And Matt, that doesn't really do this one justice. But for Bays, he made his debut in his, I would say, natural weight class, his supposed weight class, 125 pounds against Bruno Silva. 
and he gets starched. And we had high hopes for Baze in that fight. And I think it's only fair that we throw it on back to a 15-minute card breaks rookie review. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't checked out our second channel, you should because we have a lot of fun and we talk about other sports. But it gives us an opportunity to look back at... Maybe the promise, the hopes, the dreams that we had for certain fighters. Let's throw it on back to the rookie review for JP Bays. We have JP Bays making his debut at 24 years of age. Now listen, he had the opportunity to punch his ticket to the UFC when he was 21 back in 2017. Took on Joby Sanchez over on Contender Series and he was unable to get the win. He was actually finished in that fight, but since then... He's been able to rack up three straight wins split between EFC and Brave and LFA and the Contender Series. He's been around the block, but listen, for South Africa's own JP Bays, this guy can get it done in a lot of different ways, but you know and love the wrestling and the top pressure, especially from him. A plenty finishes, and that's the thing that you like. I mean, his last win, guillotine choke, referee stoppage, ground and pound finishes, mounted guillotine choke. When he fought Guns Up Magomedov, a little bit of a DQ, wasn't supposed to elbow him when he was down. It is what it is, but he ends up picking up a win where he was in a bit of a compromised position. This is one of those dangerous fights to predict because everything tells you that JP Baez should win this fight. It really does because he's the better wrestler, he's the younger fighter, he's the more hyped up prospect. He's been doing well since the first time we saw him on Contender Series, and this is one of those classic fights where you think, oh, Bay's gonna go in there and just dominate Silva. But when you actually look at who Bruno Silva's fought and how he's done in those fights, it's not like he's been completely counted out in either one of them. Bay's may be able to replicate some of that uh, success. He's got really good takedowns in the clinch, but one thing that Bay's really good at is doing takedowns in the center of the cage. He's got really good cage control, and he's great at keeping his opponent from getting their back up to the cage to then try to wall walk up. He does have great control, and that's the thing for Bruno Silva. In all of his fights, he is gonna get tired, and it just kind of depends at what point in the fight he will. So if Baze can really make him work early, I think it's going to look good for JP. All right, Matt. So Baze comes into the UFC. He's good at wrestling. He can strike into the clinch. He throws a ton of power. He gets finishes in every which way. And then he goes in there against Bruno Silva, and it was bad. It was bad. It did not go well. What, what were your takeaways from that fight? The problem is that JP Bays looked like such a dominant wrestler outside the UFC. And when he did finally make the transition over to the UFC, you kind of assumed that the wrestling would also make the transition. Or you thought that the dominance that he at least displayed outside the UFC would at least somewhat translate. But it just didn't against Bruno Silva. And listen, Bruno's a tough fight. Don't get me wrong. But I don't ever look at Bruno Silva as one of those guys who's so far out there that a UFC UFC guy making his debut can't beat him. And the issue for Baze was that... I, I think you gotta put respect on his name now. I, I, you do a little bit, but the problem is that you talked about striking into the clinch. Baze didn't really show that ability much at all, and he just was eating damage the whole time he was doing it. Again, Marvin Vittori's name is about to get brought up. We're what? 30 seconds into this prediction video, it might be a record. But how many times does Marvin Vittori get knocked out going for takedowns? None. Because you know what he's really good at doing. He throws some good boxing combinations. Nothing wild. Nothing that's going to blow your hair back. But it is effective. And that's what matters at the end of the day. JV Bays doesn't have the most effective uh, strikes into the clinch. And you're fighting Montel Jackson. And listen, Montel Jackson, he's a good grappler. He's got great jujitsu. But he's got big, big power in his hands. We were looking at UFC Stats website. He has six knockdowns in the Bantamweight division. 
Nobody really gets knockdowns and knockouts at this division, but Montel Jackson's shown the ability to go out there and not only submit great grapplers, but knock out and hurt great strikers too. And that's why I think this is a really hard fight for JP Bays. Because for Bays, just in a vacuum, if you're looking at a guy without the height that he has, it's okay. You have a guy with promise who loses his UFC debut. Normally, they give that guy someone who's maybe on a two-fight losing streak. Maybe they had won a few fights, but now they've, you know, they've won one, lost one. You don't fight Montel Jackson, who's looked really good as of late. I just, this is really odd matchmaking for me. I, I don't really know why so, they're putting this fight together. So, we look at it for Jackson and his body of work. He knocked down Rico DiCiulo over on Contender Series. He ends up knocking him out. So, two knockdowns in that one. He fights Ricky Simone, loses by decision. He gets out-wrestled, out-grappled in that one. Then he fights Brian Kelleher. And he submits Brian Kelleher. Then he fights Andre Sukumtov. Kind of does everything better. Then he fights Felipe Claros, knocks him down and totally outstrikes him. Fights Brett Johns, loses, knocks him down once. But Brett Johns was one of the old, well, I won. UFC doesn't want to pay me. He's tricky. Yeah, I mean, it was the old Coors Light with Brock Lesnar. UFC don't want to pay me nothing. I'm going to Bellator and then it didn't work out for him, but he was against a good fighter. And I digress. So then he takes on a short notice opponent in Jesse Strader. Now, you might know Jesse from... Being Aaron Carter's boxing coach, and that didn't work out too good because even Lamar Odom could beat him. But Jesse Strader at the end of it, decent boxing. Fun fights. We saw him in fun fights with Combate. That's kind of the only nice things that we could say. He knocked him down twice in two minutes, knocked him out in that fight that did Montel Jackson. Just so Jackson has all of those things. He comes out of Pura Vida BJJ with the O'Day Osbournes of the world, Zach Otto's gym, Hot Take Kate, who's been on Fight Night Picks before, uh, working out of Pura Vida BJJ. And I'll throw down another name, Matt. Who do I have here? Jamie Simmons. It's in the UFC. So all different kinds of looks there. But a super positive striking differential. A great strike accuracy at 55%. Averages 4.15 takedowns per 15 minutes at a 77% clip. Gets taken down two, well, stops two-thirds of the takedowns against him. This guy is long for the division. He's a southpaw. He throws so many tricky things at you. JP Bays is going to be an undersized 135er. He gives up, what, five inches of height? And what, seven and a half inches of reach? It's just against the southpaw? Now... I want to give one shout to JP Bays. Cheyenne looked really good after going from Fortis over to Extreme Couture. JP's been at Extreme Couture for that amount of time. You're only going to train with guys that are going to help you box into the clinch, that are going to accentuate the skills and the facets of your game that are already net positive. So I think for Bays, that's a huge success. And I think we're going to see that kind of play out in his next number of fights, whether it's Eric Nixick or whoever that is coaching him over there can really put together a good game plan. This is just such a bad fight stylistically for him. This thing caught Montel Jackson reminds me a little bit of Daniel Rodriguez at this weight division. Now, I don't think he has the same level of volume that Daniel Rodriguez has, but I do think that there is some similarities in their games. You wouldn't give a UFC newcomer Daniel Rodriguez. They did. His name was Parker Press or Preston Porter. <laughs> <laughs> Preston Parsons. Preston Parsons Preston, is the man's name. Preston Parsons. And it didn't go well at all. And JP Bays is... He is basically a UFC newcomer. I know he's got the one fight, but still, he is very, very green in his career. I just think this is a really bad fight for him, and I do see Montel Jackson walking away being the winner. Matt, the odds makers, they agree. The odds for this one open a minus 600 for Montel Jackson. He's roughly a minus 559. Somebody put a lot of money on Bays at one point, and then it blips back down. Bays open a plus 400, plus 401.
one. That's what Best Fight Odds has for this one. Over on Tapology, 875 total votes, 90% going with Jackson to win, 72% by knockout. For the 10% that have Bays, 32% by decision, 20% by submission, 34% by knockout. Listen, anybody can land a good punch, and maybe he can knock him out in this one. I think Montel Jackson wins this fight fairly handily. Yeah, I agree 100%. Both of us going with the huge favorite. Everybody's going to razz us out. Over in the comments section, but you let us know. Do you have Jackson here? Are you going with JP Bays to get his first UFC win? Maybe you're feeling fiery. Maybe you're feeling lucky. Maybe you know something we don't know. We want to hear from you down below. Did that rhyme? Yes, it did, Matt. In the main event, we have Anthony Lionheart Smith taking on Ryan Spann. 15 total fights on this card. You're not going to want to miss it. So keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, as we always say. Let's, let's get into it. A couple of prospects battling it out this weekend at Lightweight. We have Dakota Bush. His nickname is Harry. He'd be familiar with today's sponsor. It's Manscaped. Check him out, manscaped.com. Use promo code FMP. You're going to get 20% off and free shipping. And for Dakota Bush, it's a stupid nickname. It's a great product. He's taking on a tricky fighter in Rongju. And this is a guy coming out of China. He was one of the multiple participants that took place at UFC 261. He took on Kazula Vargas in that fight. Didn't end up looking all that great. However, for both of these guys, for Rongju, it didn't work out for him in his debut. Kazula Vargas was just too much. For Dakota Bush... He took on Austin Hubbard on short notice. It was just too much. But they're each making their respective second times out. They're looking to make... It's a second chance at it a is. first impression. We're going to throw it on back to the rookie review for both of these guys. Ooh. From 15-minute card breaks. Check out our second channel if you haven't already. And then we're going to give you an update on those two fights that they had and what we're thinking on this one in particular. We're throwing it back to the rookie review. Taking on one of the worst nicknames or best nicknames in the sport, you have Dakota Harry Bush. And for Harry Bush, he's coming into this fight on short notice, replacing Natan Levy, who had a big win over on Contender Series. It's not Dan, it's not Eugene, it was Natan. Unfortunate that we don't get that fight out of the Israeli fighter, but a lot of people might be familiar with Dakota Bush. And you probably know him from, well, his fight against Bryce Logan, or maybe his fight against Jaleel Willis. I like Jaleel Willis. He's a great guy to have with Bellator at 170 pounds. And that's the thing. For a lot of the fights that Dakota Bush has had in the lower promotions, and by lower, LFA's not very low, but it's lower than where he's at now, his opponents have missed weight. Jaleel Willis missed weight in their fight. Austin Clem missed weight in his last fight. And if you know Austin Clem, well, he really lit the fire, or at least extinguished the fire, of one Aaron Chalmers. So you look at it for Bush. He took on Clem. He finished him quickly. You look at the fight that he really struggled in. It was the one against Willis. First round? Bush probably won it. I had Bush winning it. Round two, Willis just completely out-wrestles him and gets him to the mat. Third round, all Willis, same thing, 29-28. I know in that fight after watching a lot of Dakota Bush interviews was that that's the one that he really thinks about a lot. He was disappointed with his wrestling performance. So he went out there and trained that exclusively. And if you look over on, you know, the respective socials, he trains out a couple of different gyms. But I've seen it recently. He's at Westside MMA in Little Rock training with... TJ Brown has got a big fight coming up. Training with Bryce Mitchell. You like to see stuff like that out of a guy for Dakota Bush that mainly he strikes to wrestle, 
but he strikes the strike, and this guy throws tons of power into his strikes. And that's what makes this fight so fun, because for Austin Hubbard, a really good counter-striker, and we have seen him struggle with the offensive wrestling himself, so that's why I'm really excited for this fight. We've seen both guys struggle against at least stylistically similar opponents, and then we've seen both guys thrive against, well, really the fighters who they're fighting this weekend, and that's why I'm so excited. I can't wait to see the offensive upgrades from Dakota Bush that's on the mat, because like his offensive wrestling is very good. His full works really slick he's got a nice wide stance but he kind of moves his shoulders around he keeps his head off the center line to he quote joe rogan if you saw a silhouette of dakota bush fighting you would know that's dakota bush for rung Ju, this guy is the most uh impressive to me out of the three debuting fighters out of the pi in shanghai that i've seen i mean wow i love the fights I get it. I mean, he has so many fights. He's only 21. He just turned 21. He took his first pro fight at 16. He's 17 and 3. And if you watch the way that this guy fights, it's very, very fun. And he really brings the fight to a lot of his opponents. Uh, I, I just, I, I can't wait. For now with Rongju... He's not of that upper echelon in the lightweight division, and it will be interesting to see really where his ceiling is, because at only 21 years of age, every time we see this guy for really the next while, like every single fight for the next two, maybe even three years, he is going to get better time after time after time and for Kazulu Vargas I hate to say it feels like he is being brought in right now as kind of one of those showcase opponents but let's just call it what it is you have a guy who is 0-2 in his UFC run right now fighting the very hyped up prospect coming out of China I look at Rong Zhu and you look at all the wins I mean 17-3 overall 11 of those 17 wins are by knockout 10 fight win streak that he's bringing into Wild. this one you look at the second to last fight you look at some of the names and this was the same thing that we did in well our last preview with Archie Long and you go okay well, you know, 0-1, 18-5, 10-9, 0-4, 17-5, 9-7. And, and, and back it up to the second to last fight. He beat Shah Yilan. And you might think, okay, 17-5. This guy's debuting in the UFC next month. Like, this is a UFC caliber win. And he knocked him out in the first round. And if you go back and watch that fight... He eats a right hand for dinner when it starts, and then he just starts to give it back. Very, very technical fighter. Holds his hands nice and high. Really nice, almost tie stance with his hands up like that. He'll whip out a lot of kicks as well. Again, this guy is the one that I'm most highest of out of all three fighters that we have coming out of the UFC's PI in Shanghai. So I tip my hand, but I mean, I look at it. He goes jab, jab, and then a big right hand to follow it up. Like, he throws a lot of great boxing combinations too. Listen, I, this is a guy with a ton of upside. Obviously, you can see it from the age. You can see it from the amount of fights that he's had. But he's an absolute machine. So, for Rong Zhu making his debut at UFC 261, the way that it worked out was the UFC PI over in Shanghai, they had their respective champions or different fighters that were going to lead the organization into the UFC. They had... Na Liang that took on Ariane Carnelosi. She got beat. They had Archie Long taking on Jeff Molina. He lost. Rong Zhu, Last Hope, taking on Kazula Vargas. And for Rong Zhu, he just wasn't able to do the things that you love to see out of him over with different organizations in China. And I was disappointed because he had nice leg kicks. He had nice volume. He had good boxing. He had bad head movement, but we knew that coming in. So that was all right. Downs. And he had decent takedowns, but Kazula Vargas was just, yeah, I mean, a guy that had success at 170 before. He was just a little bit too big, a little bit too brooding. And I remember going into that fight, I had Rong Zhu big time 
And it really kind of set me back a little bit with that loss. It was one of those fights, because I agree 100%. It was one of those fights that as I was watching it, I'm like, oh, everything that could go wrong did go wrong. With Rong Zhu, he does have a good initial skill set, but the problem is he doesn't really have all the filler, if you know what I mean. Like, yes, he can strike at the outside. He has good accuracy with his strikes. He has good boxing. He does throw a nice leg kick. The problem is... He doesn't have the elbows that mix it up when guys close the distance. He doesn't have a strong clinch game yet, at least. And it was weird. I didn't think we'd see any of his wrestling against Vargas in his last fight. But I think he was credited with, like, five takedowns in that fight. And it was a lot of him getting the takedown out of desperation and then just trying to hold on to it. Vargas would pop back up to his feet. And by the end of that fight, Vargas Three. was... Three. And by the end of that fight, Vargas was just walking down... Uh, Rong Zhu, and it does worry me with Zhu moving forward in the UFC. Is this somebody who is such a front runner in his fights that we're going to worry about him later on? It'll be weird in this fight against Dakota Bush because, again, Bush is a guy who, if you just look at his initial fight in the UFC against Austin Hubbard, it's not going to give you the best read on him whatsoever because, again, cardio was such a big factor in that fight. I thought he looked good, to be completely honest, starting out against Hubbard. He was landing the leg kick himself. It was weird. Both guys in that fight, great offensively with the leg kick. Neither guy cared to check a single one. But Bush was having success. The issue was that the success wasn't sustainable. Once his cardio did start to fade even a little bit, it's kind of the classic Austin Hubbard fight. What happened? Austin Hubbard. You get tired going for takedowns, then he starts to chip away at you later on. I'll be really interested to see uh, this fight over the weekend because no, the winner, we're both going to get a much better idea as to who they are after this fight. So for Bush, it was on short notice, maybe some cardio issues there. I think he's going to shore those up. Training a little bit more at the pit, you know, Glory Fitness and MMA with James Krause, with James Gallagher, so on and so forth. You're going to work those grappling chops. And this is a guy that was, and I want to make sure I get it right, a Missouri State wrestling champ and the other thing can be said or the same can be said for Rong Zhu who isn't training at the PI anymore and that was a major talking point for me on question mark kicks before the fighters out of the the Shanghai PI made their debuts none of their coaches were there like that's huge so for Rong Zhu not out of that PI anymore he's actually out of American top team his first post there was 18 weeks ago and his first picture was with Dustin Poirier. So I love to see that, but I want to give credit where credit's due with some of the training partners. Magomed Magomed Karimov, Armin Zarukian, Mike Davis, Hanato Moicano, lots of really good fighters. But to really kind of highlight how bad his fight was with Kazula Vargas, the judges' scorecards, 30-26 and then two 29-28s. Uh, he got two of three of his takedowns in round two, went one of one in round three. Like you said, kind of odd maybe that he was going to wrestle like that. When the striking didn't work, at least he kind of deviated away from the game plan maybe. Just, uh, for me, it all felt so rushed and panicked. Like Jordan Clarkson, for instance, is a basketball player that I oddly really like. But Jordan Clarkson only does one thing well, and that's get buckets and try to break ankles. With Rong Zhu, it's... If you're good at breaking ankles and getting buckets, why are you out here trying to rebound now? Like, we don't know you for your wrestling. Uh, don't try to be something you're not, but I don't really just mean it in that way. The problem with Rongju is that if it goes from we're striking on the outside to now we're striking on the inside, it wasn't okay. How am I going to navigate striking on the inside? It's now I'm going to panic take you down. It's just a lot of what he does feels rushed. And it's weird because he has 21 fights on his record. But I don't think he fights like a guy who has 21 fights on his record. Personally, I look at him as a much more green fighter than he really is. Because I mean, he's only 21. I, I, I know, but and still. And he fought 
a not-so-great level competition. He did beat Shailan Nordumbeka, who's now in the UFC. And that's good. But again, I really do feel like when you fight people who are just fighting in that same kind of realm that you are, like, all those fighters are from the same program. So when you're just fighting within that program, it's really hard to figure out how you stack up compared to other people across the world or in the UFC. I know when I'm playing streetball in Fredericton, New Brunswick, I feel pretty good about my skills. I know if I went to any other city, I'd probably get dominated. So I just think with Rong Zhu, I, I, I think there's a fighter that he could become that could be a borderline top 15 guy if everything breaks right. I think this fight against Dakota Bush is going to expose some more of those holes in his game. And I actually do think that the wrestling of Dakota Bush is going to shine through more in this fight. Because this thing you have to remember, Austin Hubbard only fights wrestlers. He's gotten half decent at fighting them at this point. I know he lost the last one that he fought and Vince Michelle, but still, hear me out. Dakota Bush was able to get one takedown on uh, Austin Hubbard in that fight. If you can get one takedown on Austin Hubbard, I think you can go out there and out-wrestle a guy like Rong Zhu. I do. Well, you look at the last two losses for Dakota Bush. He loses to Jaleel Willis, who's a great welterweight. He's over with Thank Bellator. God. And Willis missed weight in his fight against Dakota Bush. I know we talked about that in the rookie review. Then you lose on short notice against a really good wrestler in Austin Hubbard. Rongju isn't Jaleel Willis, and he's certainly not Austin Hubbard. So to me, I think Dakota Bush is going to have a lot of success in those aspects. Now, could Rongju go out there, one-two leg kick, really kind of strike his way in a little bit close, or pitter-patter in and out? He definitely could, and I think the advancements from American Top Team will see how they play out in this fight. 18 weeks is a long time to train there, too, with some of the best in the world. And again, a guy like Zarukian to get ready for Dakota Bush, hey, that's a pretty good guy. So if we have a look at the odds for this one, Bush open a minus 145 favorite. He's a minus 126 right now. Again, best fight odds. Rongju open a plus 125. He's a plus 103. If we have a look at the votes over on Topology, 996 total votes, 73% Rongju, 55% by decision, 36% by knockout. For the 27% that have Bush, 72% by decision. I think Dakota Bush is going to make this a boring fight for Rongju. I think he's going to win this one. And I think his wrestling is going to shine through as well. That's... That's what my notes had. Yeah, again, uh, Dakota Bush didn't really get the opportunity to show the best version of himself the last time out because he fought a great counter wrestler on short notice who has great cardio. So all those holes in his game looked even worse in that fight. I do think we'll see a much improved version of Dakota Bush this time out. And I do think he'll be able to get the win. Can't wait for this fight. We could definitely be wrong. Rongju could go in there, whip up some of the magic that he had before he came into the UFC, really work his striking and earn that knockout win like those Topology fans have said. Let us know down below in the comments section who you have we're both going with dakota bush in this one 15 fights on this card there is a lot of information to process watch it split up because later on in the week we throw those individual videos out there have fun listening as a full video if you like but you can also find us on apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, spotify wherever you get your podcast matt really looking forward to this week coming up you're not going to want to miss any of it so keep it locked in with fight night picks as we always say let's get into it absolute banger at 135 pounds we have mayhem nate manus taking on tony gravely and what an interesting fight it is because for nate manus coming into the ufc i had no sweet clue what this guy was going to be good at i mean i went back i watched his fight against taylor lapless with tko and i went okay He's not that great. He's not that special. And then he gets a win against Kellen Van Camp, who's 3-2. and two. And then he ends up in the UFC against Kid Kvenbo, Johnny Munoz. And okay, 
Well, he didn't really beat him that convincingly. And I kind of thought Johnny Munoz won that fight because he was a little bit more offensive. So I really kind of tried to boil it down. What's Nate Maynard good at? Being defensive and good behind the black line? Okay, so then he goes out there and he fights Luke Sanders. And Sanders blows his load in the first round. And Manus takes over in the second round. So now I come into this fight and I still don't have a great idea of what Nate Manus is good at. Can he strike from distance? Sure. Is he a good defensive grappler? Yeah, he gets neat submissions. Apart from that, I just have a really hard time. I mean, he's got a nice leg kick. I, I just have a really hard time. He gives up a lot of space. Unless the guy's really tired. For Tony Gravely, what can I tell you? One of the better wrestlers you're going to find in MMA because he just goes to the well and goes to the well and goes to the well. And in his last fight, he had the wherewithal to go, okay, I'm taking on Anthony Burchak. The guy's a little bit crafty, and you saw that in the first round of that fight. Gravely gets him down. He gets him in a bad position. And then Burchak reverses it. And then he gets him into a guillotine. He pulls guard. He pulls really tight. But ultimately, Gravely knocks him down in the first round, and he knocks him down in the second round and earns the knockout. That's a performance of the night bonus for him. And listen, he's a guy that has known the bonuses. He got a fight of the night bonus when he took on Brett John. So for me, Gravely is an interesting guy because I think his hands have continued to get better. He's a guy at 29, what, he's a week away from his 30th birthday. So happy early birthday to Tony Gravely, but 27 pro fights. And a guy that wasn't just content training at American Top Team in Atlanta, made the move down to Florida, and he's trained with some great training partners there. I know that was a big aspect of his interview with JHK going into that fight against Burchak was, hey, I'm making these gains. I want to show off these new tools that I've learned from my teammates. And automatically, hey, good strike in that one. So I really do have a tough time with this fight because I could see it going either way. It should be a really fun fight for Gravely. It's interesting. He's kind of the poster boy at this point for wrestling yourself into exhaustion because he's just done it so many times. And yes, he does have a great takedown repertoire, I guess. He's very diverse with the types of takedowns he can go for. He does have, of course, a great power double leg. He can lift opponents up past his head like he's a prime Cain Velasquez and slam them down. But the issue is that when you go for big actions like that, when you do get big takedowns like that, it takes a lot of energy. And Gravely's one of those guys who, I take you down, I take you down, I take you down. I'm doing good work. And yes, he can win not only minutes, not only moments, but rounds that way. He just kind of finds a way to lose the fight. It's kind of like Chael Sonnen. It was always, oh, I just kept on finding a way to lose the big fight. That was the thing. He'll look good, especially in that top position, like I mentioned. But the thing is, after he does pass the... I, I'm not going to give you a minutes threshold. I'm going to give you like a 10 takedown attempts threshold. Because that really is the key for Gradley. I do like how his striking has improved. Because now he's finding ways to explode into the pocket. It's not just I have to reach my hands down and reach for takedowns. He's finding the way to close the distance with his hands. And I'm not going to say it's just like Chad Mendez. But he's starting to incorporate some Mendez-esque like portions into his game and that's something that you love to see for someone with the wrestling of Gravely. This just will be a really interesting fight because for Manus you know how good his jiu-jitsu is. I myself underrated it going into that Luke Sanders fight because hey I thought Luke Sanders is going to win a lot of fights in the UFC and it just never really worked out for him but he's one of those fighters that Gravely has traditionally struggled with in the past where okay I'm taking you down I'm having success in top position and the next thing you know you go for like a leg lock that forces me to give my back it creates a scramble next thing you know Manus has Gravely's back and he's choking him out I just think Gravely has reached the point in his career where now he can at least inflict damage if he's not getting the takedown I do think he can win moments on the feet against Manus but that's what this fight comes down to I think Gravely can go out there and win 
uh, maybe even the first two rounds, and then go out there and find a way to lose in the third round. For Manus, it'll be interesting. I don't know how much success he will have on the back foot in this fight, because if he's reacting a lot to what Gravely's doing, then that will leave him open to the takedown. That will leave him open to the big shot, and it won't really let his own game flow, which is, let my hands go a little bit. Volume strike to a certain degree. I think this is a really interesting fight. I do think Manus has a huge opportunity, because I don't really think Nate Manus is at the point to where he should be fighting a guy like Tony Gravely. Tony Gravely, at least to me, has proved that he's in that, like, I, I don't want to say 15's the ceiling of his cap, but can I say, like, 22 to 30 range, maybe? Like, I think he's at least going in there with former top 15 guys, and I do think this should be a really entertaining fight, though. For Gravely, I gotta be on, I think it's lazy to say that the gas tank's such an issue, because, I mean, I look at the losses. He lost to Pat Sabatini in his second pro fight. He lost to Ricky Bandejas. He lost to Marab. He lost to Manny Bermudez. He lost to Patchy Mix. These are all on the regional scene, and then since that Patchy Mix loss in 2018, he's only lost one fight to Brett Johns near the end, but he beat... James Quigg, Bruno Fajaya, Draco Rodriguez, Colby, or sorry, Co Cody Nordby, Chris Moutinho that you know and love. That was a five-round fight. Darren Mima, Ray Rodriguez, who were at seven. Geraldo De Freitas, Anthony Burchak, and he was supposed to fight Nate Maness not that long ago. It ended up Burchak stepped in on short notice to take the fight. And I've seen just these marked improvements in Gravely. Yeah, he is the type of guy that wrestles and wrestles and wrestles in his UFC tenure. And what? That's three fights. 6.11 takedowns per 15 minutes is the average at a 54% clip for Nate Manus. 88% is his takedown defense through, what, two UFC fights? That's it. I wrote down the fights just if we wanted to have fun. But again... Kid Kvenbo was able to kind of have a little bit of success. He ends up with two takedowns. Luke Sanders went for what? He got what? 0 for 1? And Munoz got 2 Luke of Sanders 16. Wrestle, 2 of 16. So, I mean, Manus has been able to kind of thwart the takedown attempt. But, man, Tony Gravely is one of those guys that, like, he just keeps on a coming. It's like the train. It's like the wind. It's like the tide. It just keeps coming. Now, I know you've struggled with erosion on the show, and I keep sliding you. So, I'm going to give you a net positive here. Gravely, yeah. Is he going to be a top 15 guy? I don't know. I could say the exact same thing about Nate Manus. And this is one of those like gut check type of fights. Like This really is going to determine their entire UFC path in this one. That's why I've got to side with the experience factor of Gravely. He's been in there with guys at least somewhat similar to Manus in the past. And again, he has the key, which is the wrestling. I really do think Manus has to get into some kind of a grappling exchange to win this fight. And yes, there will be takedowns in this fight. Don't get me wrong. This will not just be a striking affair. But Gravely has the key, if you will, to decide whether or not this fight takes place on the feet or on the mat. And I do think that's why he's going to be able to win this fight. If he's having success on the feet, then he's the one who can decide, okay, this is now going to be a kickboxing fight and if he is starting to get boxed up a little bit on his entries then he can decide okay we're now taking this to the mat now i wouldn't like that part of the game plan as much as i would like uh him winning on the feet but i do think gravely's experience will be able to win this one for him. tony gravely open to minus 225 he's now minus 191 over in best fight odds for nate man open to plus 190 he's now plus 157 does any of that surprise you 
Not really. Again, I really do think that the experience factor of Gravely is a massive uh, X factor for him in this fight. And for Manus, again, there is still somewhat of an unknown out there. Like you said, it is just kind of hard to give you a great assessment of his skill set. But I've liked what I've seen out of Gravely so far. And like you said, he's made improvements throughout his UFC tenure, and you can't say enough about that. The topology votes, they're surprised us. They are to you. 958 total votes, 54%. Manus, 75% by decision for the 46% that have Gravely, 57 percent by decision 31 percent by knockout i like tony gravely in this fight but again manus is going to have a five inch height advantage a little bit of an advantage in the reach as well is gravely going to be able to box himself into that distance where he's able to own the fight i'm assuming so i i don't have a crystal ball i'm not a clairvoyant but that's what i'm going with here yeah, I agree. Matt, really leaving a cliffhanger there. If you like Nate Manus in this fight, if you like Tony Gravely in this fight, you let us know down below in the comments section. Both of us going Gravely here. 15 total fights. We've got a lot of them coming up that you're not going to want to miss, so keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. And as we always say, let's get into it. Our next fight feels like a bit of a trap, and I say that because we have the 12th ranked women's bantamweight Panny Kianzad Bonsai representing Sweden taking on the US of A's own Rocky Raquel Pennington, the former title challenger, and listen, that was one of the worst title bids I've seen in a really long time. That fight did not go well for Raquel Pennington. Since then, it's been a bit of a rocky road, two and three, the overall record. Uh, you know, including that fight, she lost to Jermaine Durandamy. She beat Irina Aldana, who's on a little bit of a run. She lost to Holly Holm, and then she beat Marion Renault. Unfortunately for Pennington, again, she is unranked in this division for Panny Kanza. Since she unfortunately lost to Julia Avila, which is her second UFC loss, considering the fact that her fight against Macy Chasson in the finale of The Ultimate Fighter, considered UFC fight, she has won four fights in a row. She beat Jessica Rose Clark. She beat Betch Cohea. She beat Sajari Eubanks and Alexis Davis. Now, I was one of the few that did score that fight 29-28 for Alexis Davis against Kianzad, but it was a very close fight. Alexis Davis is somebody that always wins the second round, and if she can build up just enough momentum, she'll win the third, and she will beat you. But Matt, I say this feels like a trap card because in my mind's eye, Panny Kanzad's takedown defense for a striker and a kickboxer has continued to improve. It's been good in the UFC. Mind you, she has been taken down by Betch Cohea. Sajari Eubanks was able to take her down. Alexis Davis took her down. Raquel Pennington, though, could be that fighter that really just snuffs everything, puts out the fire, makes this a boring fight, and this is the type of fight that Pennington can win. That's why it feels like a trap card to me. This might got to push back a little bit on your comment about Pennington's career post Amanda Nunes. She had a razor-thin close fight with uh, Jermaine Arandami. That fight wasn't like Arandami just blew the doors off her, and she hasn't looked terrible ever since. Like, a win over Aldana does mean something, and the Holly Holm fight was awful. That's all I can really say. Like, Holly Holm Raquel Pennington took turns holding each other up against the cage. If you like Jan Blahovich, Jacare Souza, you probably like that fight. Exactly. Honestly, the perfect comparison for a fight. Nothing but clinch control. The problem with Raquel Pennington is that all of her success is kind of what makes her fights boring. And it could also be a detriment to her because Raquel Pennington really lives and dies off that clinch control stat. Like, clinch control really is a big thing for Pennington. She's a great fighter because she can put out her opponent's fire. If you look at the Holly Holm fight, like, Holly Holm wasn't really able to connect clean on Raquel Pennington because Pennington 
figures out, okay, there's two ways to avoid your punches. I can either use A, head movement, B, move out of the way, like move, uh, I guess, escape distance, or C, so I guess there's three, crash the distance, close that space, and not give your opponent any chance to really put momentum behind their shots, and that is normally what Pennington decides to go with, and that's the type of fighter that can give someone like Penny Kianzad problems, because I don't think Pennington's going to be able to go out there and just out-wrestle Penny Kianzad. I really don't think that the wrestling will be an issue, as much as that clinch control will be an issue because we talked about this in other fights normally we do a lot earlier on the prelims but it really does matter if one fighter is going for a takedown and the other fighter is just defending that takedown even if you do not successfully get the takedown attempt I don't really get any points just for being good at defending takedowns. Like, this is something that MMA fans really struggle with as a scoring uh, item, I guess. Just because people think, oh, I get the takedown, it's worth X amount of points. Not really. You have to do stuff with the takedown. And it, being in a defensive shell does not score well with the judges. That's why at the end of all the scoring, it's cage control, whoever's moving forward. They reward the people who are offensive, at least with their attentions. And that's why Pennington could win this fight. She could go out there and fight a wet blanket type of a fight for two of the three rounds and win this fight easily. I just think that we're starting to see Raquel Pennington slow down a little bit athletically, and I do think that Kansas' volume is really going to give Pennington trouble. Pennington just turned 33, uh, what, a little bit over a week ago, so happy birthday to her. But yeah, Matt, I look at this one. I mean, for Kansas, 4 and 2 in the UFC, like I said earlier, she trains out of. Er, bro, Fight Gym and Arte Suave, 78% takedown defense combined in the UFC realm. And yeah, I mean, the Betchikahea fight, did she fall asleep a little bit? Yeah, she normally does in some of her fights and just doesn't pay attention. And I still thought that Alexis Davis beat Panny Kanzad, so now I'm at a bit of a crossroads in terms of the pick, and that's what makes it tough. Because Kanzad looked good after the early storm from Sajara Eubanks. Can she do the same thing in a fight against Raquel Pennington? I mean, I guess. I don't know. Kanzad open minus 105 favorite. Sorry. Underdog. She's a plus 105 now. Raquel Pennington open to minus 115. She's roughly a minus 128. If we have a look at the topology votes, 1,006 total votes. 69% going Kanzad. 90% have her to win by decision. 31% have Pennington. 85% by decision. Matt, none of that really surprises me. I mean, maybe I guess the fact that, you know... Pennington's the favorite, having said, you know, uh, what, an 11 and 8 total record? I was just about to come in from the top rope, Shawn Michaels style, and be like, bit of a hot take, Craig. I actually think Raquel Pennington's going to win this fight. Now, I didn't know she was the favorite before I was about to make that statement, but I actually do think Pennington's going to be able to make this a terribly boring fight. I think if you can beat Irene Aldana, even though she didn't beat the same version of Aldana that it was seen a split. as of late, I still think that that type of style is what's going to be Penny Kanzad. Just that type of, oh... You have to win by using your volume. You can't throw punches if I'm holding you up against the cage. I don't think this will be an aesthetically pleasing fight to watch, but I still think it'll be one that Pennington could win. I think Pennington wins the first round, and Kanzad wins round two, round three. I know she wasn't able to do it against Davis, and that gives me a lot of pause and a lot of worry, but I like Penny Kanzad as an underdog here, so I have Kanzad in this one. Again, you can't be fooled, and I like your assessment on this one. You can't be fooled because one's ranked, one has a bad record, 
One's two and three in her five on in. They're against really good competition. And the Aldana win continues to look better for Pennington. Here. Without the fight of the Knights, Raquel Pennington's record is very similar to Matt Brown's. If you just fight the top people in your division for years and years and years, your record's not going to look that good at the end she of the day. She finished Jessica Andrade. Shows Crazy stuff. But Matt, we're split on the pick. I have Kanzad. You have Pennington. Want to hear from you down below in the comments section. Who do you have in this fight? Let us know on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. Rate and review them, and then throw your pick out there too. We have 15 total fights on this one, so we gotta get on the horse. We gotta get moving. You're not gonna want to miss them. So keep locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's, let's get, get into it. it. Mike Rodriguez has four inches of height, five inches of reach, and he's a southpaw, and that makes this fight very tricky for Tafan Chukwe, who's moving back up to 205 pounds after his first two fights in the UFC. At middleweight, we have an interesting fight going on. You can find myself, Craig Allen, at Craig Allen FMP on Twitter and Instagram if you want to discuss the fights. Matt Allen at Matt Allen FMP. And no, he won't battle you out on topology. Nobody got time for that. Matt, we have this fight between Slow Mike Rodriguez, whose five on in is absolutely disgusting. It's one and three with a draw. He's taking on Tafan Chukwe. Actually, it's not even a draw. It's a no contest that he fought against John Allen because he lost the fight. So really, it's one and four. But John Allen, you know, USADA and so on and so forth. For Tafan Chukwe, it's four and one. And the wins were nice. He beat at McCowan. And that was a nice win. We talked about that in his last two. He beat William Knight. He knocked him out. Defended some takedowns. He beat Al Madavau, who shouldn't have been fighting at 205 pounds. He beat Jamie Pickett with volume. That was nice to see out of a power puncher. And then his last time out, he fought Jun Young Park. And we have to talk about this fight. Because that is the reason I am sure why he's moving back up to 205. Probably thought 185. We're just going to go lean, mean, fight machine. Lloyd Irvin and everybody from the gym, they're going to help me out. I'm going to go on this crazy run at 185 because it's not as stacked as 205. That sounds fishy, but I'm going to make it work. And he looked great against Jamie Pickett, so that's cool. And then he fought Jun Young Park, and I want to say we both had Tafan Chukwe to win that fight. Jun Young Park's teammate had just beaten William Knight, Dong Jung. So, you know, there was some reason to be excited about Jun Young Park. The Iron Turtle, he's a fun fighter. He's got some nice wins on his record, too, if you want to go back and look at it. But what happened? First round's a little close. Second round, we're starting to go Jun Young Park. And then Tafan Chukwe fell off cliff in the third round. Like, bad. Like, big-time bad. So, if you look at that one, the scores, definitely not very fun. That was considered a majority decision because Tony Weeks wasn't paying attention. He scored that fight 28-28. The other judges, 29-26, 30-25. The other score, 28-28. We just can't be having that. So, for me, first round... Close. Second round, Chukwe loses a point because he decided to go for a cup check. And then in the third round, he gets 10-8. So you add those scores up, it's not 28-28. So he's taking on a weird test in Mike Rodriguez, a guy who got outgrappled big time by Danilo Marquez. Did we say Marquez might not have been UFC caliber coming in or even in that fight? Yeah. Did we have a bad taste in our mouths because Mike Rodriguez should have beaten Ed Herman because he had nuts in his chest? Yeah. Before that, he knocked out Martian Pragno. All of this within a calendar year. So you can understand how I have a weird view of Mike Rodriguez in my head for just about every one of his fights, right? I think Devon Chukwe knocks him out, and I don't even think it's going to take him that long. I really don't. This is the problem with Mike Rodriguez. He's one of these fighters who is good at holding distance, but bad at keeping it. 
Hear me out. When he does have distance, you mentioned it. He's a tricky southpaw. He's kind of a sniper in the way that he does strike. He's not somebody who throws in combination. He relies on catching his opponent as they close the distance on him. Tavon Chukwe throws in combination, though, and throws at distance, and that's really the key in this fight. I worry about the gas tank of Tavon, because I'm always going to after what I saw in his last performance, but based on his UFC debut, at a minimum, he can keep output if it just is a striking battle. This is what Chukwe's cardio really comes down to. He does not have the muscle endurance to grapple at all at the MMA level. He's a phenomenal kickboxer, and if you do allow him to just strike, I do think his cardio actually can look good in a type of fight where he is just striking 50 minutes. I don't think Mike Rodriguez, the type of guy who's going to go out there and try to shoot for a lot of takedowns, I do think this is going to be a weird fight. And I'll get your opinion on this. I think this will be one of those fights where neither guy lands a significant strike until like the fourth minute of the first round. I think there's going to be a significant amount of feeling out process because I don't think Chuckway is going to really want to commit with any of his strikes. And I do think that Mike Rodriguez is kind of happy to stay on the back foot sometimes in his fights. So I don't think anything's going to happen for the first four minutes or so. Then I think Tafan's going to immediately hit a switch, land one big shot, and knock out Mike Rodriguez up against the cage. I really do. I don't think Rodriguez has the level of striking that could really hurt a guy like Chukwe on the feet. So for Tafan Chukwe, 13-1 Muay Thai record. He was a 2016 and 2017 WKA national champion. He was a world champion, one of the, uh, well, I think it was 2017 as well. Again, coming out of Team Lloyd Irvin, so, you know, take that for what it's worth. For Mike Rodriguez, Rivera Brothers Boxing, Lowe's on MMA. I mean, he does kind of have that complete package. It's just, it shows itself in weird ways. He's kind of like Pascal Siakam. Like, he does a lot of things well, but nothing so well that in the playoffs, you're like, wow, he can go to the well every single time with that one move. Like, the spin move's nice. Keep trying to back guys up. Yeah, the spin move's work. nice, but you need more than just that one post move. Now, Pascal Siakam is a much better NBA player than Mike Rodriguez is MMA fighter, but still, it's one of those things where it's a lot of things to like, but nothing to love in the game of Mike Rodriguez and that's what I think is going to be the issue for him. He's not a good enough wrestler to where he can go out and get the takedown if things aren't going well for him on the feet and I definitely don't think Mike Rodriguez is going to go out there and start out striking Defon Chukwe. You want to get really crazy? Let's get crazy. Mike Rodriguez can play mind games because he was featured on week five of season one of Dana White's contender series and he can go hey pop his collar go boys. I won the headliner for that like one. In the co-main event Defon Chukwe's teammate Peter Pettis lost this fight. And then also on that card, Shelton Graves, who won, but didn't make it to the UFC. So Mike Rodriguez can just go, your guys suck. They didn't make it. I made it to the UFC. I've been here since 2017, rapping. Four years, not the sexiest record. Could be one of four and his five on in. For Chikwe, though, you, you don't see him winning past the second or third? I think he can. Again, I really do think that this fight's going to be a kickboxing affair for the most part. And if you do let Chukwe just strike, I don't think he's going to get that tired. We've seen it. If you allow him to throw in volume even, uh, he can have some sort of staying power in that third round. I like that he throws in combinations. Chukwe just strikes a lot like Fazeev does. I know that might be a bit of a controversial thing to say, but they both throw a lot of power behind their combinations. They don't just throw their combinations. And I always bring up Dan Hardy for this, where Dan Hardy's big thing is... 
when you throw a combination, it should be, you always switch up which is the power punch. So if it's like one, two, left hook, then maybe sometimes you throw the two with a lot of power. Sometimes you throw the left hook with a lot of power. Chuckway has that kind of a striking game to where when he throws his combinations, he can switch up the levels and the velocity in which he throws each strike. I don't think Slow Mike Rodriguez thinks about striking on that level, and that's why I don't think he's going to win. It's a tricky one. The odds for this one open at par. Chickway now minus 130 favorite. Mike Rodriguez at a plus 106 or thereabouts. If we have a look at the topology votes, 1,036 votes, 82% Chickway, 78% having to win by knockout. For the 18% that have Rodriguez, 44% by decision, 46% by knockout. I think you will get a finish in this fight. And if not, it's going to be really boring. I have Tafan Chickway in this one. But I, I get it. Mike Rodriguez has a bad record. Especially in his last five fights. He definitely has an opportunity. That one's reflected in the odds. Maybe not by the fan vote. So I have Chukwe. But I would not have this one on my card. It's pot and popcorn at his finest. I'm not going to let slow Mike Rodriguez scare me that much. I'm really not. Like, you almost maybe kind of beating Ed Herman isn't enough for me. I'm sorry. I do like Tafan in this fight. I do think he'll be able to get the finish. Both of us going with Tafan Chukwe to get the win. Let us know who you have in this fight. And the other 14 fights that are on this card, we have Anthony Smith taking on Ryan Spann at the end. You're not going to want to miss it, so keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, as we always say. Let's get into it. A couple of guys at middleweight that definitely need a big wins in a big way. We have New Manta, Joaquin Buckley taking on Antonio Ahoyo. And in this fight for Joaquin Buckley, he has to have a little bit of solace, right? Because the circle of wild viral kick knockouts just continues to go. He knocks out Impa Kasanganai. And then he gets knocked out by Alessio Di Chirico. And then Alessio Di Chirico gets head kick knocked out. Or at least it was shin, knee, whatever it was. But... For Joaquin Buckley, it's weird and it's a little concerning because he's only 27, but he continues to lose by knockout. He's got, what, three knockout losses on his record, one in his debut against Kevin Holland, but we give him a little bit of slack because he came in on short notice and it was a really tricky fight and he had a little bit of success in that one. Then he's able to get wins over Imp Sanganai, wild one, knocks out Jordan Wright, wild one, and then he gets knocked out by Alessio Di Chirico about seven months and two weeks ago. You like it because it was a while ago. It's not like he got knocked out two months ago. But hey, sometimes guys get knocked out like Julian Arosa, come back and finish Charles Jordan. What do I know? All I do know is that for Antonio Ohio, I don't know what this guy does well. I mean, it's like that clip from Saturday Night Live, Main Justice. That's right, son. I want you about smarting off, and I don't know if you get what you is. Does he know what he is? Like for Antonio Ohio, seriously. The guy, they talked about him for ages. He replicates Thiago Santos in the gym. He's this tall body at 185 that can switch stance. He can kick. And then he goes in there and fights Andrea Muniz. And fights a boring fight. Muniz, we got to put some respect on his name. You more so than anybody else in this world. But Andrea Muniz, we know now, is he's legit. He's a ranked fighter at middleweight. So then Ahoyo goes in there and he fights Deron Wynn. What do you got to do when you fight Deron Wynn? Don't play Deron Wynn's game. Don't get taken down. Matt... In that fight, boom, boom, we go and look at the numbers, and oh boy, Deron Wynn went 12 of 16 on his takedown attempts. Ohio had success when he struck with him, and then it, like he just played a stupid, boring, 
I'm going to let this happen game. And I've never been more upset in my life. It has to be said that was at a special catch weight of 195 pounds. That's why you see that in front of you on your screen. And for Ahoyo, he's had bookings that have fallen out. You look at it so far in the UFC. He's supposed to fight Tom Breeze back in June. The fight fell out. Breeze had some complications, some issues. So we didn't get that fight. But for Ahoyo, I look at the physical gifts. I look at the bill of sales that I was promised. And I didn't get what I was promised. And I have this guy in front of me that's 32. And I have no friggin' clue when he's going to turn on. It's like it's Keith Richards. And I'm just waiting for him to start up. And then he just doesn't start up. And he's like an old lawnmower. There's just a lot to talk about when you want to talk about Antonio Ahoyo. Antonio Ahoyo reminds me of this one blind date I was on where I had this one friend and she was like, oh, you're really going to like this other friend that I have. She's the total package. She has a lot going on. And then I showed up and her friend was kind of like Antonio Ahoyo, much more disappointing than the initial sales pitch. So for Antonio Ahoyo, it just, you hear the Tiago Santos in the gym, you hear about what could be. But at the end of the day, Antonio Hoyo is two years away from being two years away. That's just the problem. Like, I don't look at his skill set and I don't look at it as being a skill set for MMA. Now, just let me expand on that a little bit. You need more than just one way to win in MMA. We all know this. MMA is an extremely offensive oriented sport. So if you have a really good offense, that's good. But you need more than just, you can't be one note, for instance. Antonio Ahoyo can beat you if he catches you with a counter-strike on your way in. That's pretty much it. He hasn't shown the ability to go out there and volume strike with guys for a consistent 15 minutes. And he also hasn't even really shown that power in the octagon either. Well, and for Ahoyo, it was like, okay, this guy's a dynamic striker. Picture him before he came into the UFC. He's 9-2. and two. Comes into the UFC, dynamic striker, big submission win coming oh, in yeah. over Steven Regman. Built like, like a great god. You like to see all these things. But I think it was like, oh, I submitted a guy. So that's a possibility. We can play around on the ground a little bit. And hey, he didn't get submitted by Andrea Muniz. Shakaray Souza can't say that. It's like uh, when Tito Ortiz knocked out Chuck Liddell in their third fight. Do you think after that he was like, damn, my hands. I've got good power. Let's wait a year and a half and take on Anderson Silva. There's the call. <laughs> Boy, but yeah, I look at this one for Ahoyo training at a Jackson Wink MMA, Marajal Brothers team that he has spent time with in Brazil. There's definitely things to look forward to if he's training with the John Jones of the world and who else? The Devin Clark was also in this card. Little bits and pieces that he can gain, especially in a fight against Joaquin Buckley. I think for Buckley, he has to kind of make the fight boring because if he tries to be too exciting, you get decaricoed. I'm going to disagree a little bit. I think Buckley can have success in the boxing exchanges in this fight. Buckley's weird because not a lot of guys have a peekaboo style in MMA, but I would say that is how Joaquin Buckley strikes. He's not even much of a kickboxer, although yes, I know he has probably the greatest kick highlight of all time. Most of his success does come from his hands. He's a guy who, it's almost weird how he uses footwork. He steps through his opponent to throw his power. And when Buckley does land with his hands, he has great hand speed for the division. He's a little bit undersized, like frame wise he doesn't really fit the division all that well just be interesting to see if he ever does move up or down in weight but i do think buckley can have success with his hands in this fight i do think he has much higher hand speed than antonio ahoyo and i do think that once he gets on the inside he can capitalize on that uh fact ahoyo will have success because again with that peekaboo style you can get caught with uppercuts and knees i know to head kick buckley but it was in large part due to his ducking action he ducked into that head kick and it caught him a little bit early almost so i do think that joaquin buckley is weird the highs are very high but the lows are very low and i still think that the 
I, I don't even know. I still think Joaquin Buckland's worst day could probably be Antonio Hoyo. There you go. So right now, the circle of kicks, Abdurazak Al-Hassan's up at the top. Yeah. Can Joaquin Buckley get there and then fight Abdurazak Al-Hassan? I'd be cool with that fight. It's kind of like if you want to talk about uh, Kevin Garnett, Tim Duncan, and Dirk Nowitzki. Now, these are all great players. And none of the other ones are. But Joaquin Buckley could kind of be like Kevin Garnett. Like, your peak could be better than the other ones. It's just going to be a lot shorter you know his highlights the best but i don't that it's going to stand out the most at the end of his ufc career i think this is one of those get buckley back on track kind of fights we've seen this before sean o'malley just fought chris mutino it happens guys so yeah i think we keep buckley's gonna be able to get back on track antonio hoyo open a plus 165 underdog he's at a plus 175 right now buckley open a minus 190 roughly a minus 220 on best fight odds matt the overall picks over on Topology, 1,070 votes, 89% Buckley, 81% by knockout. It's like that 21 Pilot song. I don't believe the hype. That's references. a lot of people going with him by knockout. 11% have a Hoyo, 23% by submission, 42% by knockout, 28% by decision. If that math made sense, I don't believe it did. I have Joaquin Buckley in this fight because I, I haven't seen it from a Hoyo. I've seen him get out grappled by a great wrestler. But he played that game. We saw him in the striking exchange. It was like he had the smile on his face. It was like, man, I, I'm coy. I got this. And then he lost. It's When Adesanya fought Jan Blachowicz, if you go back and rewatch that fight, Jan Blachowicz is having success on the feet. But the success Adesanya is having isn't really offensive success. He's making Jan Blachowicz bite on his feints, which is great. But the problem is, if you don't follow those feints up with strikes, you're not scoring with anything as a result. Antonio Ahoyo will faint quite a bit. And he does, like you said, he looks really happy when he's on the outside striking. But the problem is, he never puts anything together on the outside. I really don't think he's going to be able to catch Buckley on the way in when Buckley does try to duck in for an overhand. I do think Buckley's going to be able to catch him with a big shot. I met my wife at Fredericton Ribfest in 2015. I will go with a Ribfest selection of Joaquin Buckley. And not the blind date at Dairy Queen with Antonio Ahoyo. Matt, you're in agreement here? It wasn't Dairy. The date cost a lot more money than just Dairy Queen, unfortunately. It wasn't Dairy Queen. Both of us going with Joaquin Buckley in this one to right the ship and get the win. Let us know down below in the comments section if you understood any of the references and who you have for a pick in this fight between these middleweight slobber knockers i guess maybe strikers we'll leave it at 15 that. fights on the card anthony smith ryan span up at the top that you're not going to want to miss so keep it locked in with fight night picks as we always say let's, let's get, get into it. it if you've been liking the stuff from fight night picks consider supporting the channel by utilizing the super thanks all you have to do down below the video you toss in a little bit of bonus, you buy yourself an animated super thanks, and they will post the following public comment on your behalf. All sorts of different options out there. We'd certainly appreciate the support with the channel. You guys are definitely the best fans in all of MMA, and we appreciate each and every one of you, and hope that you definitely enjoy this weekend's card. All sorts of great matchups littered throughout. We appreciate the continued support of the channel and the boys. Thanks so much. Without further ado, let's get into it. Big time fight coming up at lightweight. Everybody should be excited for this one. We have the Spartan Christos Yagos taking on Armin Zarukian. And there's so many different layers and reasons to get excited because both guys, very, very good grappling. Both guys have trained at Black House MMA in the past. But now, instead of being in California, they're both in Florida for Armin Zarukian at American Top Team for Christos Yagos at 
Samford MMA, and it's got to be awkward for Yagos because in his last fight, he beat Sean Soriano, who's been one of the main guys at like Hard Knocks, Samford MMA, Lisk Black Zillions for the longest time. Soriano's been there forever. So it's got to be a little bit weird, but for Yagos, good training partners, the likes of Saul Rogers, he's pretty good on the ground. Uh, Jerry Gordon, he's tricky on the ground, especially with his takedowns and mm. his hands. And I could go on and on and on. And for Zarukian, an American top team, my favorite fighter at 155 pounds. It's not like Poirier or, you know, a forever version ago of Jorge Masvidal. Is Mateusz Gamrot. I absolutely love him. I think if you're training with him, getting ready for Yagos and other grapplers, he's the perfect guy. But when I look at this fight, it's reminiscent of the 1984 hard rock hit that's by one of Matt's favorite bands, Night Ranger. And it goes, Matt, you're motoring, but what's your price for flight? And I look at this fight that way because for Christos Yagos, the knock on him forever, and it was my knock on Billy Quarantillo until he knocked back on Instagram and went, these fight night picks guys don't know jack, you know what. Yagos had bad cardio. Yagos would go out there, put in a great first round, and the second round he's done. And the third round he's done done. Second round's not that bad. But if you look at his fight against Carlton Minus too, wins the first round handily, wins the second round decently, and in the third round... There's pockets where Carlton Minus, is he back in this one? In his last fight against Sean Soriano, he lost the first round, and then he gets a submission in the second round. So Yagos, a little bit of an about face there. Going to learn from the guys at Sanford MMA from Zarukian, right from Jump Street. The guy looked amazing, even in a loss against Islam Makachev. You look at his other fights in the UFC. He beat Olivier Bermercier. He beat Davi Hamo. She beat Matt Frivola. He beat him everywhere in that fight, too. Made him look silly. And Matt Frivola's a good grappler. So Matt... I'm going to actually bring up the odds because I think they're a little wonky. Zarukian open a minus 300 favorite. He's minus 737 on best fight odds. Yago's open a plus 250. He's a plus 492. That's crazy. It is, but let's just look a little bit closer because if you do look at just its surface value, then yes, those odds those odds are crazy. And I I guess most people who are betting are looking at this fight just to that level. But we're what you'd consider experts, Craig. We can look in a little bit deeper. The problem is that Armin Zarukian, stylistically, is an awful matchup for Christos Yagos. And Yagos is one of those guys who I think could have a fun fight with anybody in that, that like 13 to 20 range. The issue is that... He needs offensive takedowns for him to be at his best. And this is a guy who's made massive improvements in his striking game. He used to really only be able to, like, wildly throw his arms in the air and throw a good body kick, and that was pretty much it. Now he can string together some good combinations. He throws with a lot of power. I won't say he has good power, but he puts a lot behind his shots when he does throw them, and that's almost why he has bad cardio as a result. Our, our Christos Yagos, when you look at his fights, it's not like he doesn't throw a lot of strikes. He's not somebody like Kimbo Slice who just got tired in the third round at like 17 significant strikes. He has a very high output, but it's the fact that he's throwing everything behind all those shots. By the third round, it's really hard to throw 150 shots at 100% uh, full speed. And the fact that he does need a lot of offensive takedowns to really accentuate his own striking and make his game look a lot better is a really big key in this fight because for uh, Armin Zarukian. This is a guy who even Islam Makashev had a, almost an impossible time taking down. And even when he did initiate a takedown attempt, it would just immediately result in a scramble. So I think stylistically, this is a really hard fight for Christos Yagos. Although I can openly admit, Yagos has areas where he can win. Let's say he can defend all the takedowns. And this fight is just a striking fight. I think Yagos is probably the better striker, or at least the more consistent striker throughout 15 minutes. And it's to the point where I, I would probably favor Yagos to win two of the three rounds if this was contested on the field. 
feet. The issue is that Sarukian, A, doesn't give you a lot of space to strike, and B, doesn't just go for one takedown, gives up, and then creates space, and then will shoot him for another one. He's going to chain that double leg attempt into a single leg, and then put your leg halfway up to your chin, and then reap your other leg. Like, he just does a lot when he is in these clinch situations, and I think all of that's going to drain the gas tank of Yagos even worse. For Yagos crazy, I mean, two runs in the UFC, he makes his second time out, he loses to Charles Oliveira, he beats Mizito Hirota, he beats Demir Hodzovic, he loses to Jakar Kolos, he beats Carl Minus, he beats Sean Soriano, and that fight was two, almost three months ago. Fireman Zarukian, again, he beat Davi Hamosh about a year ago, six months ago, he beat Matt Frivola. That was a weird one, because it was supposed to be Zarukian and, who was it, Nazareth Hakbras? That was the fight we were going to get. Matt, miss Matt Frivola was going to get a fight, they ended up kind of putting them both together, it was just odd, but Sarukian, he did miss weight, came in at 157, Frivol accepted. Well, that was the whole Otman of Zaitar, what's in the bag, wasn't it? That was exactly that. There we it go. It was just potatoes. But yeah, you look at this one, the odds, they're, they're just silly as, uh, what was it? What was his name? Larry Enticer. You silly? I'm still going to send it. So yeah, you look at this one, the odds are kind of wacky. You look at the topology votes, holy crap 1052 total votes 93 percent zarukian 74 percent by decision for the seven percent that have yagos 51 percent have to win by decision i mean yeah for me i look at christos yagos a fun fight at 155 pounds lerone murphy i think that's a great fight i'd love to see that fight i don't necessarily like this fight because i think armin zarukian really wins Christos Yagos reminds me of a store brand RDA. And I mean that with a tremendous amount of respect. Because for RDA, for him to win a fight, he has to be the superior grappler. He's a good striker. But when he's winning, he's the one taking his opponent down. Now, when we all think of RDA losing, what is it? It's him losing to vastly superior wrestlers. Habib Nurmagomedov, Kamaru Usman, Colby Covington. Covington. Guys who go out there and their specialty is wrestling. Yagos is very similar. If offensively, he is able to get the takedown that he can really outgrapple his opponents and make their life a nightmare on the mat. The issue is, I just don't think he'll be able to take down Zerukian, and I do think Zerukian's going to make his life really tough and go for a high volume of takedowns to the point where Zerukian, I don't think, will win by submission or uh, decision, but we're going to see a vastly worse version of Yagos by the end of the fight. Because this is what I mean. He's not going to win by submission or decision? Sorry, submission or a knockout. I don't think that he's going to get the finish, but it could be open. This could be one of those weird fights where, although Yagos is a good grappler, if fatigue is such a major factor in this fight and he is really tired, Zerukian might be able to lock up a submission in the third round. For me, I've got Armin Zerukian. I've got him to win by decision in this one. Want to hear from you. Do you have the guy representing American Top Team or Sanford MMA's own? We've got a lot of fights on this card. 15 in total. Smith taking on Span up at the top. So you're not going to want to miss that. Keep locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's get into it. In a fight that was originally booked for two weeks ago, we have the UFC debut of Germany's own Monster Mandy Boom. She's going to be taking on the Queen of Violence, Ariane Lipsky, the former KSW Queen of Violence, I guess that's why the nickname is there. But Matt, we previewed this fight two we weeks did. ago. We profiled this debut two weeks ago. Broom was out of the fight camp because, unfortunately, as a YMH reference, you didn't follow Proto. There was a little bit of a COVID scare there, but it ended up it was COVID. 
and then the fight was rebooked really, really quickly. So we end up getting this fight. We're going to throw it back to that original preview. We're going to update the odds and the final prediction for this one. Big time fight in a UFC debut for the former champion in Canada, Germany's own monster Mandy Boom, the O Umlaut. You got to get it. So Boom. Uh, taking on Queen of Violence, Ariane Lipsky. Now, I did struggle with violence. I don't know why that was. But. This is an interesting fight because for Mandy Boom, you look at the level of competition that she's faced so far in her young MMA career. She has the belt from TKO. She was able to get the win over Jade Mason Wong. And in that fight, it was an interesting one. TKO 48 was absolutely stacked. If you haven't gone back and watched that one on Fight Pass, it's insane. There's three title fights up at the top. Nate Main has fought on that card. Uh, you had Cyril Gaon taking on Souza. Like, it was wild stuff. She's able to win there. She gets the flyweight belt, third round, rear naked choke win. After that, a long layoff, about a year and a half. She took on Great Ekout over with Bellator. Bellator 247 at the end of 2020. She wins that fight by decision. But she was originally before that supposed to take on Liz Carmouche in her Bellator debut. In the UFC, she was supposed to take on Tyla Santos. That's how highly promotions think of Mandy Boom, a fighter that's represented... A fighter that's represented SBG Ireland in the past. Now she's training out of MMA Spirit in Germany. I'm sure that's kind of due to the pandemic. But again, you look at it, maybe not the highest level of competition. I mean, her debut, 0 0 0 0-0, 0-0, 0-0, 3-1, 2-3, 0-1, 3-0, 5-3-1. And in that fight against Greet Eckhout, I went back and watched that one today, among others. And the trouble that I had, Mandy Boom, great striker. Really nice jab out there. She throws a nice low kick. She can kind of bring her hands down. And I know that was something that throughout the fight, John McCarthy was talking about it. You got to bring your hands up. And then her coach, John Cavanaugh, was saying, you got to bring your hands up. And eventually she did, but she gets hit by a lot of shots against fighters that maybe aren't the highest level. And if we can say anything about Ariane Lipsky... She's another one of those fighters. Consistently inconsistent. She loses fights she should probably win. And in this one, like, it's a make-or-break opportunity for Lipsky. I think if she loses this fight, she's out of the UFC. So let me just set this up. You have a former KSW champion whose nickname is the Queen of Violence. Was, How excited are you? Was thought to maybe, cra A, crack the top 15, make her way up it, and make a strong case to at least get into the top five. And I'm not overly pumping her up and saying that. That was like the perception around the Queen of Violence. Like, hey, this is our next like Karolina Kovalkiewicz. That's what I was going to say. And that's the thing about Lipsky, though. She doesn't really have any massive strength to her game. People are going to talk about her Muay Thai. Her striking's not that good, if we're being completely honest. I do kind of lump her into that be a Malecki Muay Thai artist because you might have the credentials, but I only care about what your style is inside the cage. She doesn't really fight like a Muay Thai fighter. Yes, she has kicks from the outside, but Lipsky's best spot is top control on the ground. She's someone who has really good ground apparent from the guard. It's a weird place. She doesn't really pass guard. She's kind of like Crow Cop. She goes for a lot of elbows in the open guard. But she is a very unique fighter in that aspect where a lot of people are going to talk about, oh, she's such a good striker. I really look at Lipsky more as a grappler in MMA than I do as a striker because most of her success does come that way. It is, I'm going to kind of beat you up on the feet. Her opponent shoot for a takedown. She gets top position, then uses good ground and pound. The thing about Lipsky, though, is 
she's never really been able to beat that upper echelon in her career. And yes, her run in KSW was very impressive, and just her run in general before the UFC was really nice, but my issue I always have with Lipsky is she's one of those fighters who needs a lot of distance to get off a lot of her offense, but she's so bad at keeping that distance between her and her opponent. If she does have her kickboxing range, then yes, she does have a good active jab. She does have good straight shots coming down the middle. The issue is that any time an opponent is able to get on the inside, clinch with her, get her up against the cage, I don't know if it's just a physical strength that she lacks, but she is a fighter who can be controlled on the ground and up against the cage. Yeah, if you look at it for Lipsky, from the hop, she was taking on really good competition. Her first fight, a win over Diana Turcato, who's taken on good fighters. She ended up losing to Firmino, who's taken on good fighters. And then you look at the big win streak that she had with different promotions, Invicta, or sorry, Immortal, as well as KSW, where she was the champ. Beat Sheila Gaff, beat Diana Belbizia, finished her in the first round. Beat Mariano Morais that you might have seen over with PFL here recently. Then she ends up in the UFC. Loses unanimous decision to Joanne Calderwood. Okay, they thought you were here. You weren't. Loses to Molly McCann. Okay, yeah. you're not there. She beats Isabella De Padua, and that's a unanimous decision win. But De Padua was on incredibly short notice, and for that fight, you were supposed to have a fight against Macedo, a fight against Priscilla Cachueta. Those fell out. De Padua came in on super short notice and gave a decent account of herself. Then she takes on Luana Carolina in a fight that's booked, booked, and rebooked. She wins that one by wild knee bar. Was it Sulev's stretch? Was it knee bar? She let out the crazy yell. It was awesome. She gets completely dominated by Antonina Shevchenko. She gets dominated by Montana De La Rosa and finished. Well, by the way, that was a hair shy of three months ago. So it is a really quick comeback for her. Whereas Mandy Boom's been out for quite some time. Her last fight, again, like I said, with Bellator against Greet Akeout back at Bellator 247 almost a year ago. I, this is going to be a really odd fight because if Boom can get some of her power shots off on the feet, I actually think she is the better striker in this fight. I know that's going to take a lot of people by surprise, but I think she's the more active striker. At least that's what I should say. I do worry about Lipsky creating distance in all of her fights. And again, my issue with Lipsky is I don't even really know what her strength is because again, a lot of her success is in the grappling department, but even look at her last two fights. She's someone who can get held down. And that's something we see. Remember when Jack Hermanson fought Jacare Souza? I I know Jacare is amazing in jiu-jitsu, but Jack Hermanson is a great grappler himself and very heavy on top. And that was one of those weird fights where when Hermanson was able to get on top of Jacare, he could hold him down. If you're able to hold down Jacare, who's one of the best black belts to ever transition over to MMA, then you can do the same thing to Ariane Lipsky. It's just an odd little wrinkle in her game that she's never been able to overcome. Off of her back, she isn't good at all, but in top position, she does have success. So this fight could go pretty much any way. I think if Lipsky loses this one, it's fair to say this is probably it for her UFC career unless I don't know maybe Dana White likes her like he likes Sam Alvey hey Sam you've lost nine in a row we'll throw you out there again. Ah, that's the judges yeah I don't know who you're yelling at Sam you didn't throw a punch in the third round I think Mandy Boom can actually win this fight. I, that might be a controversial thing to say, but I honestly do think that with her combination of clinch control and her activity on the feet, I think she's going to be able to beat Lipsky. I just don't think Ariane Lipsky's the fighter that I thought she was coming into the UFC. I think the fighter that's undefeated and the favorite is going to win. I know it may be controversial. I went back and watched a lot of tape on both these fighters. I think Mandy Boom, again, if she's moving out there, orthodox stance, pump the jab, pump the jab. The trouble that she has is she is a striker. She's training with Katharina Lehner that you might have seen on The Ultimate Fighter. That was the same season, 28, where you had who? Macy Chasson, Penny Kanzad in the finals. 
But you look at it for Boom, and she goes out there, she throws a lot of wild looping shots, and she's not very defensively sound. So any fighter that can throw straight shots at her, they're going to have a lot of success. But Mandy can mix it up. She can work in some of those takedowns. She's not really able to hold a lot of fighters down. Great Eckhout, I didn't find her Everybody to be... Everybody could prove her wrong, though. I didn't find Eckhout in her last fight to be a strong fighter whatsoever. I know, again, positive record, 5-3-1, but it wasn't the greatest. Again, hands low... Not the greatest striking defense. Take on a decent strike. So ultimately, it was COVID-like symptoms that Boom had experienced coming into the fight against Lipsky. And the fight was cancelled. Not that far out from its original date. Now we get it here a few weeks later. I said we'd update the odds. Boom opened a minus 125 favorite. She's a plus, or sorry, she's minus 106 or thereabouts right now. Ariane Lipsky, slight underdog. It opened plus 100. She's minus 116 right now. If we head on over to Topology for the vote. 65% of 982 total votes going with Broom to get the win. 83% by decision for the 35% that have Lipsky. 68% by decision. Matt, we talked about this fight extensively to go back into a time machine from two weeks ago. I had Lipsky. You had Broom to get the win. Are you still feeling that way here? This is my problem with Lipsky. She reminds me a lot of Patrick Beverly playing this season for the Minnesota Timberwolves. Like, no, 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 hear me out. If you don't do well this time, it's over. Yeah, it's true. See? Perfect comparison. Like Patrick Beverly. If this team doesn't work out for you, this is probably it in the NBA. For Linsky, it's the same thing. We heard about the violence queen coming over from KSW. We all had such high hopes for her, and she never really has been the fighter that was promised coming over. I do think Boom's going to be able to win this one, and I do feel like this will probably be Linsky's last fight in the UFC. I'm still not digging Mandy Boom striking, and for those reasons, I like, I like Lipsky in this one there. I mean, is Boom going to work for the takedown or she's going to be able to get it i don't see it happening so if it's just a pure striking matchup is boom like a shevchenko sister antonina no i don't think so is she in the realm of some of the fighters that have beaten like montana del rosa can grapple and then she can switch it up and strike a little bit she can't strike at all Craig. i don't think she's that great but she did finish ariani lipsky got on top finished it out molly mccann was able to get the win what a fight against Gion Kim here recently. That was great. But yeah, for me, I like Lipsky in this one. Maybe not the most confident of picks, but I just haven't seen it from Boom in all of these fights. So for me, I've got Lipsky. You're going with Mandy Boom. Take from that what you will. Lots of fights on this card. I can't wait for Cameron Van Camp and Nicholas Mata to make their UFC debuts. So you're not going to want to miss that. Smith taking on Span in the main event. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, we always say. Let's get into it. Neat fight coming up on short notice this weekend. We have the UFC debut for a couple of fighters in Iron Nicholas Mata taking on Lebanon, Indiana's Cameron Van Camp. And for Cameron Van Camp, it's kind of like he's a flying Walenda. He's not the only brother that's a fighter. He has two other brothers that are pro MMA fighters. He's a guy that kind of picked up the trade when he was in his senior year of high school and he hasn't looked back. A total record of 15, 5, and 1. And some fights against some guys that you would recognize. A loss on his record, Austin Hubbard. He fought Bobby Volker at one point, 2019. How crazy is that? He beat. Matt, I mean, who can we pick out that, that's a really impactful win on here? Dan Stitkin that people might recognize. He beat Quentin Parks Jr. twice. He has a no contest on his record against Thomas Gifford, and he ended up losing by submission in the first minute. 
But Gifford, you know, going to Gifford, and it ended up as a no contest at the end of the day. But for Cameron Van Camp, he's a guy that switches things up on the feet. He'll start out orthodox. He'll switch over southpaw, throw a couple jabs out there, go back over to orthodox. But really what he does very well in his fights, he's just so tricky to try and figure out whether he's working in his grappling, whether he's working a flying knee to end up into the clinch to get you down and then submit you. Like, he can get it done in a lot of different ways. In this fight, though, he's going to be taking on a Nicholas Mata that's one of the more dynamic strikers that you're going to find outside of the UFC. This is a former CFFC champ. He earned a shot in the UFC with a win in 2020 on Contender Series over Joseph Lowry. He was booked to take on Demir Hodzovic earlier on this year. He got hurt. He was supposed to take on Jim Miller this weekend. Miller dealing with some COVID complications. So ultimately we get this fight. But if you know Nicholas Mata... There's a reason why he was booked against those high-value names. His losses on his record, Robert Hale, Antonio Carlos Ribeiro. He lost to Glyco Frasa on, uh, what was it, the Ultimate Fighter Brazil Season 4. Got finished in that fight, but Frasa would end up winning the season. And then before that, or in the middle of all of this, he knocked out Joe Selecki in 2018. That's a pretty big win. I think that's why you'd see Mata matched up with Ahadzevich that's been in the OC for a long time, who ended up fighting a really tricky out in, who was it? No longer in the UFC, uh. Nancy Medeiros. Or against a guy like Jim Miller that has that big-time name value. That was a big stepping stone for Joe Selecki. Would have been an opportunity for Mata. Now Mata draws Van Camp, who's got to try and make the weight on really short notice too. His last fight for Van Camp, that is, in 2021, back in uh, July, he fought at welterweight against Kenny Gaudreau, finished him in the first round. Before that, he fought Haraz Sion. That was at 170 pounds, but his opponent, Sion, was not 170 pounds. He was a little guy. So this is going to be tricky. Van Camp has a lot in terms of reach and height in this fight. So what do you say here? Cameron Van Camp reminds me a little bit of Kevin Lee. And I understand Kevin Lee might go for a lot more takedowns, but their games are somewhat similar. And hear me out. They both do switch stances, like you had mentioned. But Cameron Van Camp has a very, I guess, signature trait that I don't like. When he switches stances, he's kind of hittable when he does it. And he's not one of these fighters who knows his own skill set to the level that I'd like. Like, Cameron Van Camp, to me, strikes a little bit too much, honestly. I would like to see him go more just hardcore, like, I'm going for more takedowns now. Because when you watch his fights and when he does have his most successes, when I when he is mixing in the takedown with his striking, when he's keeping his opponent guessing is when he is at his best. And it's interesting. Cameron Van Camp switches his stances based on his opponent's stance to make his single leg takedowns easier. If you are standing at him uh, orthodox, then he will match you, I guess it would be southpaw, so that his right hand is closer down to your leg. It's just, those are those like weird veteran things that you don't normally see from fighters making their UFC debuts, but just something I picked up on, something that I thought was kind of cool. Nicholas Mata has legit striking though in both hands, and I don't, I just, ah. Uh, I don't just want to say that he has good power in both hands. That power translates to his kicks too. And he is somebody who will finish his combinations with kicks. He's not at like Oscar Payotta level of it where it's like, oh, you do this every single time and you don't have another trick. But he does really like to incorporate his kicks into his striking game. And this should be a really interesting fight because I could see Mata having two different versions of his UFC career. I could see him having like a Lando Venata type start to where it's, you get this highlight reel knockout, then we throw you into the deep end of the pool and you have a fun career but maybe you don't ever reach the heights that were once uh attached to you or monica go out there 
have tough competitive fights and actually develop into a really top tier talent one day, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case either. For the guy, Cameron Van Camp, his last time out at 155 pounds was back in what was it, April of 2018 against Thomas Gifford, where he got submitted in the first round for Nicholas Mata, again, former CFFC champ. It should be said, too, for Cameron Van Camp. I made the joke about his brothers are MMA fighters, and that's cool. His last four fights with different organizations, B2 Fighting Series, SHP, Chosen Few, United Combat League. He won a belt for four different organizations before making the switch to the UFC. They needed a guy on short notice. They got him. No odds for this one just yet. We'll go over to Topology. I haven't looked at the votes. Let's actually look at the odds for Mata and Jim Miller. They were pretty much at par. So that's how much uh, credit you get for Mata. Over on Topology, yeah. limited sample size, 359 total votes, 76% with Mata, 72% by decision. For the 24% that have Van Camp, 44% have him to win by submission. Both guys get finished. If they're going to lose, like both guys oh, yeah. will get finished. So there is that opportunity out there for either guy. But out of all the tape I watched for Van Camp, when he switches southpaw, he gets hit. And he doesn't land a lot, and he kind of stands still a little Just bit. Just like Kevin Lee. So I do worry about him in this one. I think Nicholas Mott is going to get the win. I worry about the draining weight cut, too, on such short notice for Van Camp. I get it. He's in fight-ready shape. He looks great on the Instagrams, the Facebooks, and so on and so forth. I think Mott is going to win this fight. I would be surprised if Van Camp did. But I think it'd be cool if he did because, again, he has those weird paths to victory. The flying knees into a takedown. The takedown from distance that's the other thing too he'll like crash forward for some of his takedowns he'll go high crotch single leg and try and drag you down they're very forceful moves they're very appealing to watch and you can find a lot of his tape on online too like the shp fight the b2 fighting and a lot more of them so it's really easy to find tape on cameron van camp same can be said for mod if you have a fight pass subscription which you do yeah. i do so you can find him there but yeah i like nicholas mod in this fight a whole lot so do I, and I honestly think Mata can go on and have a pretty fun UFC career. He has a very fan-friendly style, and I do think if he is able to get a big win like this, who was uh, Uros Medic? He hasn't fought since, but remember when no one knew who he was? Then he had that great fight against Alon Cruz, knocks him out quick, and then everybody knew who he was afterwards? I could kind of see Mata having a performance similar to that one. All right, both of us going with Brazil's Nicolas Mata in this one. Let us know down below in the comments section who you have. Are we crazy? Do you think Van Camp's going to go out there and prove us wrong and shock the world? Or do you have Nicolas Mata in this one? You let us know. Big time fights up at the top, main and co-main. Iwan Kutsalaba taking on Devin Clark. In the main event, you have Anthony Smith taking on a really tough out in Ryan Spann. Keep it locked in with Fight Name Picks. We always say, let's, let's get, get into it. it. Autumn is in the air, the pumpkins are in the patch, and our friends at Manscaped, they're here to make sure that you don't carve your pants pumpkins when you're grooming. If you know what I'm saying, uh, listen, that's a tough line to get out, but if you do know what I'm saying, make sure you're keeping things fresh this fall with the leaders in male grooming. And their brand new fourth generation performance package, boys, get ready for a cuffing season like no other. They wrote that, I didn't just read it off the top of my head. Ready to take the leap into fall with Manscaped? Join the over 2 million men worldwide using Manscaped by going to manscaped.com. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code FNP. Listen, we've all been there before, and I'll go way off the board. So a couple of weeks ago, I was traveling, and I actually forgot to bring the Performance Package 4.0. Not only that, 
I forgot to bring everything I had to groom and to trim. It Rookie just so mistake. happened that, well, no, it just so happened that the airline that I traveled with lost my bags. So the first night that I'm away at my destination, I had to go buy new pants. I had to go buy new shirts. I had to go buy toiletries. I had to walk around because I didn't have a vehicle. I'm mad. And then I have to shave, and I realized that I had a bit of a pumpkin pants problem, so to speak. And the only razor that I had was one of those pieces of plastic with two little razor blades, I guess, oh. if that's what you want to call them. And then a little tube of eucalyptus oil, like shaving butter. It was the most uncomfortable thing I've ever done. And I say, hey, I travel with the shed, this and that. In this particular circumstance, I didn't have any of my stuff. Now, I wish that I did because with the new Performance Package 4.0, they're going to have that lawnmower 4.0. And if I was traveling, boom, well, I started up like that. But easily enough, one, two, three, bang, bang, bang. Now I've got the travel lock on. And while my bag was lost in who knows where, well, it was between Fredericton destination, this wasn't going off in my bag. Bang, bang, bang. One, two, three, all the way back down. The travel lock is off and you're good to go. Now, after that, well, I didn't really have to use it, but since I've been home, it's been great. It also comes with the Crop Reserver Ball Deodorant. It's like a salve. You just put a little bit of that on. You want to have a good day. It's a great way to start it up. But if you're feeling light, maybe even a little sassy, you're going to want to go with the Crop Reviver. This one is the ball toner. A little spritz. It's light. It's airy. It's a good way to start the day. If you pick up the Performance Package 4.0, you're also going to get those great boxer briefs that they have. And they really are. They keep everything nice and high and tight. And if you have a problem with the nose hair or the ear hair, I have a problem with the former over the latter. You gotta pick up the weed whacker. This thing does wonders for me. Wow, you can hear it working. As you can hear it working, yeah, it's been a little bit of time since I've used mine, but all sorts of great stuff there. And one of the other big benefits too, especially if you're traveling or if you're at home, not a lot of people have a nice light in their shower. That weed whacker, uh, or sorry, lawnmower, it definitely comes with something that's going to change the game. 4,000K LED spotlight, so you can see exactly what you're trying to do. They've even thrown in a couple of free gifts, the shed travel bag to go along with uh, the boxers that I talked about earlier. So a lot of great products. If you do decide to go with the performance package 4.0, you're going to get 20% off and free shipping with the code FNP at manscaped.com. Yes. That's 20% off and free shipping with code FNP at manscaped.com. Make your balls a priority this fall. Choose Manscaped and your balls will thank you. Matt, I know you love the products too. Yeah, it's great stuff. I know we've both been using them for a while now. And again, we don't just make these commercials because we like doing them. The products really do work. And I know we've had what? We started with the Manscaped 3.0 lawnmower. And that was a good product. And then they stepped it up to a whole new level with the 4.0. I just love the products that they've let us use so far. And I can't wait for the new stuff that I'm sure they'll be releasing. They're waterproof. They work great in the shower. I've been a shower shaver for the longest time. And thanks to everybody's support with Manscaped, it's really help further things along with the show so show support the manscaped and the show check them out manscaped.com promo code fnp you're gonna get 20 percent off and free shipping two big fights up at the top and a couple of guys that really know each other you want kutzalaba taking on devin clark and in the main event ryan span getting his big shot against a guy who's headlined many a show in anthony smith you're not going to want to miss it keep it locked in with fight name picks as we always say let's, let's get, get into it, it. 
Capping off UFC Vegas 37, we have a couple of light heavyweight bangers. And in the co-main event, Iwan Kutsalaba, the Hulk, is going to be taking on Brown Bear, Devin Clark. In a battle of attrition, maybe you could say that one, because for Iwan Kutsalaba, you look at it in the five on in. He's one and three with a draw, and that draw was the Dustin Jacoby's last time out. And in that fight, he had a 10-8 first round. And then in round two and round three, Dustin Jacoby was able to take over because Iwan Kutsalaba is a one-hitter quitter. He's a one-round guy, and after that, he usually gets tired and he starts to fall off a cliff, and that's what happened when he fought Dustin Jacoby. If I can boil it down to its simplest facet now he has a great opportunity in those first rounds to put on really impressive performances and maybe notwithstanding but a guy that has very good finishing power his last win was over Khalil Roundtree he finished him and then you look at some of the losses and they're against very high level competition again five on in speaking he lost to Glover Teixeira he lost to Magomed Ankalaev twice because he got finished in both of those fights when he played chicken one, he definitely didn't play chicken. And for Devin Clark, the five on in, a little bit more generous. He beat Darko Stuzic, made it boring. He lost to Ryan Spann by submission. He beat Daquan Townsend. He beat Alonzo Menafield. Made it. Now, that was an exciting fight. His dad was rooting for him. He went down. Like, that was, that was a good fight. That really was. And then he lost to Anthony Smith in a three-round main event where he got submitted in the first round. And Anthony Smith is a tricky guy, especially if you're dry. Now, Matt, I'm going to leave the puns, the jokes, and the rhymes out of it. I'm going to pass it on over to you. If we're talking about pure finishing ability, I don't think it's crazy. Iwan Kutsalab is your guy. A lot of people had him to beat Ankalive in the second fight. They said we were nuts. They were stupid. Devin Clark is continuing to get better at what he's already good at. I think we can say that. He's good at wrestling to get into the clinch, to get you down on the mat, to rinse and repeat. And that's how Devin Clark has won in the UFC. I mean, what's his most marquee win doing it that way? Well, any of those three? Maybe when he beat Jeremy Kimball? Here's the thing about Devin Clark. He did go balls to the wall one time. It just so happened it was against Alexander Rakic. And I don't know if you've been following this division very much, but Rakic is near the top of it. He drops Rakic with, like, this weird back fist, and then Rakic comes back and knocks him out. But he did have an exciting fight, and he did go out there looking for a finish. It just wasn't really against a guy who you should fight that type of a style with. Devin Clark's a really interesting character, because going into the Anthony Smith fight, I, I can pat myself on the back a little bit. I said, this feels like one of those fights where a contender is fighting an unranked guy, and it's like, okay, you might not be able to beat the top guys of your division, but you're better than this guy. And I still kind of feel the same way about Devin Clark. Like, Devin Clark in that fight kind of proved to me that he isn't a ranked fighter. And I, I know Anthony Smith's really good. He's getting another main event. This is nothing against Anthony Smith. But my point is that when Devin Clark had the biggest opportunity of his career, the first main event slot of his career against by far the biggest name he's ever fought, he didn't show up at all. He looked really, really bad and gets submitted basically instantly in that fight. And it was really disappointing because if you just look at Devin Clark's skill set, he could beat Anthony Smith in a three-round fight. If you hold Anthony Smith down, very much like Alexander Rakic did, you can beat him that way. And I know Anthony Smith's tricky off of his back, but where Anthony Smith has the majority of his successes, I'm in top position, I'm raining down ground and pound, and then after I weaken you up, then you give me your back, I choke you out. Look at the Alexander Gustafson win. That was a very similar, uh, or that was how he won that one. Il Kutalaba is interesting because they bring up his wrestling background. Oh, he wrestled. Oh, he wrestled. He gets taken down a lot, though. It's just really weird. It's kind of like Yuval Romero. He gets taken down, but he does have a really good ability to get back up to his feet. But we have seen limitations to that. Like, Jared Cannonier was able to take him down, but he got up pretty much instantly as a result of it. 
We saw in the Glover Teixeira fight, okay, you can hold Kutalaba down if you are one of those top, top tier fighters. And that's really the big question mark in this fight. Can Devin Clark take down and hold down Ion Kutalaba? I think he can do it once. He could probably even do it twice. But is two times enough to win him this fight by decision? Because I don't even think Kutalaba can win this fight by or by finish. Because the weird thing about Kutalaba is, if he hurts Devin Clark early in this fight, I think it's the worst thing that could happen to him. He's going to go in there, he's going to look to finish him, and in classic Devin Clark fashion, like, yeah, I know I might not say Devin Clark's at the top tier of this division, but what do we know about Devin Clark? He's fairly durable, it's not like he just goes down by one big shot, and he has good cardio for the light heavyweight division, and back in 2017, when it was like the Hulk, Ion Kutalaba, maybe I thought he would win this fight, but I don't really think we've ever really seen his skills progress since then. I go, I always go back to Ben Simmons. Ben Simmons has always been good. But do you want to just be good for your entire career? Or do you want to actually make that jump too great? Kutalaba felt like he was on that path. But he was never really able to make that jump and really become a contender in this division. Which is weird. Because, I mean, for Clark, yeah, he's trained at some different gyms and so on and so forth. For Kutalaba, he's been at Extreme Couture for a little bit now. We'll have to see how that pays dividends. For Clark, though, I don't know. I mean, if as far as durability, he got knocked out by Alex Nicholson. He got submitted by Jan Blahovic. He got knocked out by Rockets. He got submitted by Span. He got submitted by Smith. He gets finished. Have to do with durability, though. He just gets finished. And for Kutsalaba, again, got finished by Ankolaev once, kind of twice. Finished by Teixeira. Beat by Decision Cannoneer. Finished by Serkinov. Uh, illegal strikes against Andrazic, so that doesn't count. But when I look at this, yeah... Can Clark get him down, hold him down? Can he do it effectively enough in the first round? Because if he can, then he can do it in the second round. He can definitely do it in the third round. So I look at the odds for this one. Kutsalaba open at minus 105. He's minus 144. Devin Clark open at minus 115. He's a plus 119 over on best fight odds. For the top topology votes, wow. 1,103 total votes. 72% Kutsalaba. 77% by knockout. For the 28% that have Clark, 76% by decision. And that's it. Clark's been finished. Kutsalaba finishes, guys, especially early. And listen, Clark's been finished early. I can see that's where the fan trend is. That's also where the odds are. Oddly enough, we haven't really set it up that way. So what are you thinking as far as this because one's concerned? durability and submission defense are not tied together at all. And that's something we have to say right now. Devin Clark's not out here getting starched by jabs. He's getting submitted by Glover Teixeira. Knocked out by Alex Nicholson. And Alexander Rakic. One of the most dangerous men in the division, probably in all the UFC. I just don't think Clark losing by submission means very much in a fight against Iyanku Talaba. That's why I like Devin Clark in this fight. I actually think he's the much better wrestler in this. Although, this is something that the commentary is going to say. They're going to bring up Kutalaba's wrestling background. I care about how you fight in the cage more than what your background is. When I think of Iyanku Talaba, I don't think of him doing, like, weird folk-style takedowns from the clinch. I understand he has those in his back pocket, but until you actually go out there and start out grappling other top-level UFC fighters, I just can't really believe in it. I don't think he can go out there and get the takedown against a guy like Devin Clark, who's shown in the past that not only is he a good defensive wrestler, he's a great offensive one too, but the problem Clark has is he can leave his head open to be guillotined. That's not a that's not a tactic that I think Kutalaba can uh, uh, take advantage of, and I do like Devin Clark as the underdog in this one. I really do. Kutalaba went 8 of 11 for takedowns against Dustin Jacoby in his last fight in the first round where he 10-8 in him. Then he he looked tired. amazing. And then he got tired. So can he finish Devin Clark in the first round? Sure he can, but I don't have him to do it that way. I really think Devin Clark's going to just outlast him, win a decision. It might not be the most entertaining. It will be in the first round. You're going to hold your breath. 
But I have Devin Clark in this fight. I, I Listen, either guy could have a good day. But to me, I like the value in Clark as the underdog. So both of us going with Devin Clark in this one. Let us know down below. Do you have the guy from Moldova in Iwan Kutselaba? Are you going with Jackson Wink, Sanford MMA's own Devin Clark to get the win? Love the fight and our main event. A lot of ties there. Anthony Smith taking on Ryan Spann. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's, let's get, get into it. it. Finally time for our main event of the evening and I say finally 15 fights on this card as of Sunday when we're taping these previews and predictions as always one half of your hosting duo Craig Allen you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Craig Allen FNP with me to my left to your right Matt Allen on the respective socials at Matt Allen FNP and Matt for Anthony Lionheart Smith, it is main event after main event after main event. You look at it, he fought Alexander Gustafson, Glover Teixeira, Alexander Rakic, Devin Clark, and Jimmy Crute. And yeah, his last fight against Jimmy Crute, a little bit weird, right? Like, I mean, you have the kick to the knee, there ends up being the injury, Anthony Smith ends up getting the win in the first round, and lives to fight another day, and it feels like that was a long time ago, but just four and a half months ago for him. For Ryan Spann, the five on in, four and one, the only loss there to Johnny Walker, where he got finished in similar fashion to fights where he's gotten finished in the past, going for that double leg, getting too relaxed, I guess, and then those elbows a la Travis Brown, but picked up a big win his last time out against Misha Serkinov in a fight where I know I had Serkinov to get the win there. I thought he was going to outgrapple him, and to my dismay, I guess, Ryan Spann just went back to the well and looked great, and I guess I discredited Ryan Spann big time going into it because I didn't think he beat Sam Alvey, which sounds crazy, but that was a split decision win for Spann. He fell off a cliff near the end. He loses to Walker and gets finished, so I figured Serkinov was going to win. Now, for Misha, I'm talking to you at Extreme Couture. Why are you going to 185 pounds? I think it's crazy. Slim boy, Misha. I think it's crazy. But Spann's got a big opportunity to go off a big finish win there to take on a name. And Anthony Smith that has headlined many a card. He headlined here in Moncton, New Brunswick, Canada. He beat Volkan Uzdemir. You get to take all of that shine. This is a guy that's on the desk. You took all I work for, mother effer. He gets that chance. This is a huge fight for Ryan Spann. Now, I have to say... This fight, Matt, is it a three-round main event? Five rounds. It's five rounds. That favors Anthony Smith. He has cardio that just kind of stays constant, unless you're like a big guy that's out grappling him and pushing a pace like Glover Teixeira was able to just thrash away. But Anthony Smith, in large part, is consistent from round one. If it goes to five, he's there. He's there. Anthony Smith is a really interesting fighter because at his best, he does look like he could probably become champion. I know that's crazy to say. Because, Should have beat John Jones. Well, okay, no, he shouldn't have. He got absolutely dominated in that fight. But Legally. when you look at Anthony Smith and the best version of him, it's a very, very dangerous striker on the inside of his elbows. He's got great uppercuts too. He's got great knees up the middle, but also on the outside. He's someone who can string together combinations while walking forward and backwards. I'm going to agree with your overall point, but kind of disagree with how you got there with Ryan Spann. Here's the thing. I thought he beat Sam Alvey. I thought that fight was closer than it probably should have been. But he got rocked by Little Nog. And that's something we need to talk about. Like, I agree with you. Ryan Spann has had some... I guess he's faced adversity in fights that we definitely didn't think he would face adversity in. And the Noguera fight was the first one where I was like, okay, there's something more to this. Because he gets clipped by one clean shot, and it kind of, he stumbles back, and then he immediately knocks out Little Nog. Very, very sad times if you were a Pride fan. But you notice, okay, he's not at that top level of striking yet, but he has good power. 
Then against Sam Alvey, you could tell, okay, he can strike on the outside, he can throw single shots, he can wrestle, but then the gas tank's not really there. Just There's always a question mark surrounding a win of Ryan Spans, and until he is able to get one of those top-level wins against a guy like Anthony Smith, I'm always going to have those question marks for Span. At least with Anthony Smith, he's been in the octagon so many times with so many top-level fighters that you kind of know what Anthony Smith's going to look like against a wrestler. You know what Anthony Smith's going to look like against another striker. Like He can out-volume strike guys who are power strikers. If you're a wrestler, he has good jiu-jitsu off of his back. Like He has a counter to whatever he has a reaction to whatever action you bring to the fight. I just don't think Ryan Spann has that plan B or plan C. I think if Ryan Spann goes out there for the first round and is really dedicated to his wrestling, then he might look great. He might be able to hold Anthony Smith down for three, maybe four minutes, let's say. And at the end of that round, we're looking at each other like, wow, Ryan Spann is the real deal. I don't think that kind of a game plan is sustainable for Ryan Spann, though. And I do feel like there's a large enough sample size to show that once he does have success, once he does start burning himself out, going for a lot of takedowns, really committing himself to the strikes, that's when he does start to fall off. And Anthony Smith is one of the classic fighters who, the second you give him an inch, he takes a mile. And if he does notice that you start to slow down a little bit, that's when Anthony Smith starts to uptick his own volume. And that's when you notice, oh, the T-kick to the body is hurting a little bit more. And all that volume is starting to accumulate a little bit more. Anthony Smith was in a weird position in the Jimmy Crute fight, and you might disagree with this, but he was beating the brakes off Jimmy Crute. Like, he was jabbing his face in, he was defending the takedowns. I thought Anthony Smith looked really good in that fight for the amount of time that we were able to see him compete, because going into that, I thought Jim Crute was going to take him down and have his way with Anthony Smith on the ground, but Smith showed A, an ability to defend the takedowns, and B, he showed that he was able to damage his opponent on the feet for all those in-between moments, which, yes, we always knew that was something he was able to do, but after the damage he took against Glover, after the damage he took against Brackage, you were still wondering if that part of Anthony Smith was still there, but I do feel like in his last two fights, he's shown the killer instinct again. Smith in the UFC, a negative 1.36 strike differential. For Ryan Spann, it's a positive 0.1. That's huge. The accuracy, the stats... A little bit more in favor of Span in terms of damage taken. A little bit more in favor of Smith in terms of damage given. And if you look at it from the grappling perspective, Span a little bit more offensive with his takedowns. But also, Anthony Smith's takedown defense is 47%. That's bad. I know he's confident in his jiu-jitsu, but that's bad. Rakic was able to expose it. Teixeira and was able to expose it. The problem I have with Anthony Smith's uh, jiu-jitsu, just to piggyback off that point, is... He doesn't have a jiu-jitsu game like Luke Rockhold. Luke Rockhold's jiu-jitsu is so good, and he's so good at sweeping opponents on top, that he could have 10% takedown defense. I would not care. Anthony Smith has shown the susceptibility to getting held down in the bottom position, and that always does worry me against these bigger light heavyweights like Ryan Spann. So you come into a fight like this where Ryan Spann has a an edge in the grappling. He has 25 pro fights for Anthony Smith. He's got 35 pro wins, so there's an extra 10 there, and then 16 losses. So it's crazy the experience edge for Smith, a guy that was fighting known and recognizable names outside of the cage before stepping in to the promotion. I've talked about the main event status. Again, he had that weird three-rounder against Devin Clark. It was what it was. He gets the win in the first round, and the naysayers can nay because it was done that he quick. And then his last time out, he has that fight against Jim Crute on the UFC 261 card where 
I wish we get to see more. I really do. But ultimately, Smith picks up a really big win. When I look at the odds for this one, Smith open a minus 160 favorite. He's a minus 173 at best fight odds for Ryan Spann. Open a plus 140. He's a plus 143 or thereabouts. We have a look at the topology votes. 1,149 total votes. 78% picking Smith. 48% by submission. 25% by knockout. For the 22% that have Span, 70% have him to win by knockout. This is the big litmus test fight for Ryan Spann. Has he come such a long way from that Sam Alvey fight that took place a year and three months ago? Has the cardio gotten that much better? Or was it an anomaly? Can he get that big marquee one over Smith like Rakic was able to do? We'll find that one out this weekend. So overall, what's your assessment there? The difference between Ryan Spann and Alexander Rakic is that if Rakic goes to that first takedown and doesn't get it, A, he can strike really, really well from the outside, and he's like nine feet tall in this division. But B... So he, Spann. He is. But B, he has the cardio to then chain seven more takedowns together after the initial takedown. I don't think Ryan Spann has that kind of cardio. I think he has the initial burst to go for the takedown, and then it's, okay, I go back and I reset. Now we're striking for a little bit, then I'll shoot him for another one. I think if you're going to go out there and try to wrestle a guy like Anthony Smith, you really need to chain your takedown attempts together. The last point, too. Ryan Spann is not a great finisher on the mat. He can, don't get me wrong, that's how he finished me. He was in the top position, raining down on him. But he's not a fighter who, once he gets that takedown, he's damaging you so much on the bottom to where I'm then worried about Anthony Smith in the second, third, and fourth round. I think Smith defensively can stay at least disciplined off of his back to where he's not eating those big shots. And I do think that at a certain point, after the third round, in that fourth and fifth round, Anthony Smith's going to show why he's been in, what, 15 UFC main events and why this is Ryan Spann's first. Yeah, I, I do really have a tricky time with this one because we saw Ryan Spann against a big, strong grappler in Serkinov get on top, hold him on, and just hammer away. So Span could definitely do that against Smith. Smith is good with his backup against the cage, but if you drop levels quickly, you take him down, you get on top, and you start to hammer away, you can beat Anthony Smith. It's been done before. Ryan Span's takedowns are good, but he's not that quick every time, and that's why I just worry about it. I could see a world where Span wins. To me, I'm going to sit back. I'm going to see, hey, five and a half inch reach advantage for Span. He's got about an inch in height. Smith's one of those guys that's kind of tall and lanky for this division. And he uses his reach extremely well. That's the thing about Anthony Smith. His reach might only be 76. I say might. That's a really good reach. But he uses his reach very effectively. Even go back and look at the Crute fight. The way that he is damaging Crute, the majority of it, uh, to go along with the leg kick, of course, is his jab. He's keeping Crute so far away from him that Crute's never really able to go for a takedown attempt because the distance is so great between the two, and that's why I think Smith should be able to win. Yeah, I get Anthony Smith in this fight as well. I just think the tools are there. Could Span get the win? 100%. But yeah, this is pot and popcorn for me. I'm going to enjoy it for what it's worth. Both of us going with Lionheart Smith to get the win, but let us know down below in the comment section who you have for this one and the other 14 fights that line this card. We will, of course, have question mark kicks two hours before the prelims. Things have been popping off. The internet connection has been there, and it's been a great time interacting with everybody. You can check us out at fightnightpicks.com for the full card betting guides, the recaps, and the future matchmaking with Ian Wind, Joshua Hart with those betting guides as well. There's interviews. There's all sorts of great stuff on the channel. Early stoppage with myself and John Franklin. Is the Fight Night Picks parlay going to come back this weekend, Chris? I think it's going to come back this weekend. You can find the merch at fightnightpicks.com as well at the shop. You can support us at 15 minutes at card breaks our second channel all sorts of great stuff happening in the fight night picks world and if you haven't dropped us a sub and a like we would definitely appreciate that from you 
30,000 subscribers, you get an extra show and we will do a full Dana White's Contender Series preview and prediction type show. So get ready for that. It takes the whole Fight Night Picks fandom out there to help us out with that one, Matt. I know you're excited about that. Yeah, I, I'm excited for this card. I'm excited for what we have going on in the future. There's going to be a new studio maybe soon. <gasps> Teaser. So no, we have a lot of really exciting things going on here at Fight Night Picks. And none of it could be possible without you amazing fans. And we are so close to hitting that 30,000 uh, subscriber threshold. So with your help, we can make that a possibility. So thanks so much to everybody. Hopefully everybody enjoys the fights out there this week week we'll be back with question mark kicks on saturday and if there's any changes you can find it right here just keep locked in with fight night picks as we always say let's get into it